All right. Welcome back, everybody. Well, really, welcome back myself. Um, I haven't been doing this as much as I'd like to. I'm trying to get back into the swing of things with two podcasts consecutively, well, more or less. They're a week apart. Um, Today's episode is with Brian Jackson. He is a graphic designer in L.A. for the past 35 years, and he is a graduate of the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. He has worked on large branding projects and works with uh, Universal Pictures, the city of Los Angeles, Ferrari, among others. And uh, what we really bonded over was uh, music and uh, his work in in the music industry in designing album covers and and music packaging. Uh, Very interesting stuff. Um, You know me, I like to talk, talk to everybody on the inside and outside of this industry and uh he had stories for days we talked about fleetwood mac his work with them frank sinatra carol king herb alperts and the really big one that got this whole friendship started was our bond (laughs) our bonding over counting crows and his contribution to the album cover uh for august and everything after with his friend and boss partner uh, Larry Vigon, uh, they worked on that together. He told some great stories about his beginnings in an analog environment to moving to the digital media environment and digital, all this technology and how far it's come in the past 35 years. He's gone from physically press placing type and and manual labor essentially to moving to a computer and doing everything with ones and zeros very interesting uh to hear about that progression um just before my time so i was fascinated i just got a a photo enlarger and i'm going back to film in some capacity it's what i learned on and it's long gone now as a practical means of uh, commercial photography, but fascinating all the same. So we discussed music. We discussed a big thing. Another big thing that we discussed was UFOs and that entire world. Uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of Art Bell. I'm a big sci-fi guy and uh, it was fun discussing the irony of the fact that he's not so into sci-fi the way I don't know I'm I'm a big sci-fi guy I big trekkie grew up on the X-Files responsible for all of my childhood fears and and uh as he says he's more into science fact which is much better for conversation on this topic uh as he has discussed this with many people and met up with a great many of those in the know from conferences and meetups and things like that. He is very much an investigator and we blended it all together. It's a very great conversation and long overdue. We're definitely doing another one because we didn't scratch the surface in any capacity. We only went for about two hours, an hour and a half. And uh, if you listen, if you're still listening to this podcast, uh, you know, these go significantly longer and with repeats or repeat guests rather. So, um, yeah, 
Another announcement, uh, I covered Alice Glass at the Glass House for Girl Underground Music. Uh, long overdue follow-up. I haven't seen her since 2017 in at the Growler 6 in San Pedro. Um, phenomenal show. She drew a small but dedicated fan base to the Glass House. This was the last uh, show of her tour, uh, the Trauma Bond tour, and I got some good shots, so stay tuned for those, girlundergroundmusic.com. I'll also be posting on my Instagram and website, um, and I have another podcast coming up with Haley Kane of Haley and the Crushers discussing their latest album, Modern Adult Kicks, out now everywhere, a la Kitten Robot Records. And um, yeah, that's it for announcements. This is about Brian Jackson's episode. I just don't do announcements. I want to do them more often. And without further ado, Brian Jackson, welcome. Thanks for coming. You bet. We've been trying to do this for uh, half a year, I think. We've known each other about a year, but we didn't talk about this until somewhat recently. Yeah, yeah. I think um, during COVID, mm-hmm. you pulled down your mask and said, we should try a podcast sometime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, talking music and talking other things, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which we'll get to later. But um, yeah, you started by telling me about how you designed or helped design the cover for August and everything after. Yeah, yeah. Counting Crows, yeah. first album. Yeah, that yeah. is such a trip to me. I'm like, I know that album so well. You never know. You know, back in the day, just to jump right into it, back in the day, um, new acts, you never knew where they'd go. Mm-hmm. But you try to put as much into the design as possible and try to get a read from the record label and the music about what the possibilities could be creatively, but then you just kind of let the baby go. You don't know where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was it was it like fast and loose like that, or did you have like a a strict plan that you ended up just deviating from? In the case of Counting Crows, mm-hmm. no, it, it was very much actually it was <clears throat> it was refreshing because up until that time there was a lot of fast and loose, mm-hmm. and honestly, there's a lot of times we don't get to hear the music. But this time, and actually I forget the label, if it was Warner Brothers or what it was, but um, they said, this is going to be a very different act that we have. They're bringing back the spirit of real authentic copywriting and lyric writing, almost poetic, Mm -hmm. whereas everything else is kind of homogenized. And they gave us, uh, I think they gave us a chance to listen to the music. And I remember Larry and I, the colleague I worked with, we thought, yeah, this is kind of refreshing. It's kind of a harkens back to the, you know, '60s and '70s music writers who really put a lot into the poeticness of their music. Mm-hmm. And so we use that to kind of spearhead some ideas for the cover, where it's very organic, very writing-like. And I remember we asked Adam Duritz to go ahead and write down the lyrics so that we could use them on the cover and just see if we can come up with something. Mm-hmm. And so he did that, and he's. He brought the paper in, a piece of paper, and he goes, I wrote it down, but I, I'm sorry. There's some scribbles on there because I had to make corrections. We said, that's perfect. <laughs> that's the way it probably is sometimes. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember scanning that and trying some things in Photoshop. 
and Larry did some fantastic typography, really rough, um, and it came together and it had the impact it needed. It was unique. It kind of spoke to the organicness of the music, mm. and they loved it. So, wow. <clears throat> but the journey to I those kind that. of ideas doesn't always come through the same kind of um, process. Mm-hmm. There's many different ways that. Because that wasn't your first uh, album artwork, right? Oh, my God, no. (laughs) No, 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 no. As a matter of fact, um, the the first album, I'm trying to think, the first album I remember being a part of was a gentleman by the name of Ivan Neville, Mm. um, whose father is, help me, classic blues singer. Uh, (laughs) Blues is rough. Anyway, this is his son. I need a producer. And, um, you know, just to give a, a kind of um, a mechanical process to, mm. the, to the day, we're talking about 1987. Mm. And there's a lot of um, production challenges when you come up with an idea for a cover. Mm. Because you, you don't have the benefit of banging something out really quick on the computer. You oftentimes have to sketch and show an idea mm-hmm. that's really rough. Is that sound bugging you? A little bit. Yeah. Um, and kind of showing by virtue of other photography and other covers a hybrid of an idea that hopefully you get the okay to like get the photographer booked, do the photo shoot and see where it goes. Um, and nowadays you can mock things up exactly the way you want them to look. So... That process back then was 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 kind of archaic. Yeah, <laughs> sketching ideas, having to order type from a type house. People people listening to this probably have no clue how how weird it was. That already sounds daunting. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the most powerful, well, the most once most powerful machine, you know, on the market, and it's already out of date. And like things move so fast, I can't imagine doing that regularly like physically drawing things or physically it was a very very slow process yeah but at the time it was normal that's just the way things were i would get into the studio in the morning first thing i'd do is turn on the waxer Mm. do you have an idea what that is waxer turn on the waxer Mm. um get the paste up board ready on the drawing table Mm. i get the type galleys in from the typography house cut and paste Wax the pa- wax the type, put it onto the to the pasteboard. Um, wow. Align everything with a T square. Crazy <laughs> times. That's just the way it was. How long was that process? What you just <clears throat> outlined? Funny you should ask, because <laughs> for the listeners at home, I brought in an example of a number of album packages. One of which, I'm going to sift through some things here real mm-hmm. quick. And this is just further inspiration to. Uh, Rick Springfield, Rock of Life. Wow. Rick Springfield. (laughs) Rick Springfield was the first album that I convinced Larry that I'd love to bring my computer in and try some digital typography. Mm. He's like, what do you mean? I said, well, we don't have to order type from a type house. And that (laughs) whole process, I go into detail. That's not an easy thing to do. I said, I can bring my Mac in here, and I've got an inkjet printer. No, a dot matrix. Hello, dot matrix matrix printer. (laughs) Inside our studio, I can do all the type and yeah. paste it up, and we can give it the look that has a kind of a grittiness, that that 
hopefully Rick will be on top of and think that works well for the album, and he totally loved it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that was my first foray into digital type with a with a Mac Plus. Oh wow! This is a second generation Macintosh. This is nineteen eighty seven. It's a great cover too. Oh yeah, pull it out. Look at the liner notes. Yeah. Remember back in the day, uh, you'd get an album, you pull out the sleeve that the vinyl is in, and the lyrics would be in there. Oh yes, I do. But mine were CDs. <laughs> I was a CD generation, yeah. and then as you can see, I've moved back to to vinyl. Oh my god, oh, that's a funny, odd thing that's happening right now. It's a little snug in there. There we go. There you go. So he's opening the album, <laughs> he's pulling out the sleeve, and there's the liner notes. Ah, beautiful. See, I know. This it, size. You I know, know the, yeah. Know. It's it, a piece of art. Yeah. CDs were great when that's all we had, when it's all I had. I didn't have a record player growing up. I had, a, I had one CD player, um, and I had like, I don't know, one CD a month I got to yeah. get, you know. And records are so much better. Everything, I, had to, I didn't have to squint yet, but... There's a significant number of masterpieces in the world hanging in museums that are about the size of an album cover. Yeah. And that format and that scale and that context gives you tremendous creative freedom. Mm-hmm. And the, a, a way of playing with scale, <clears throat> with typography, um, even some of these um, sleeves that the vinyl came in, the, the um, liner sheet, that's premium printed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it, it's absolutely lost art. The excitement of CDs and the technological advancement of it, I think, overruled everybody's um, frustration that they're not going to get full LPs anymore. But then that slowly led that way. Mm-hmm. I think for people that were real audiophiles, well, not really all audiophiles, but people that just love the art of album covers. Mm-hmm. And there was a whole process to design for an LP. As a designer, you had to think about the upper third because in record bins at record stores, while you're flipping through the top edges of these albums, you wanted to make sure the upper third had the artist's name and hopefully maybe the album title, Mm -hmm. but at least the artist's name. And that there was enough engaging quality about that that um, made you curious about the album. Pull it out, flip it around, look at it. That whole process, at um, least a sliver of some mm-hmm. kind of art for, yeah. at the yeah for the top, just to get the attention. Oh, you don't have to put it back in. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's gonna take a minute. So, so in answer to that question about this idea of the archaic <clears throat> nature of paste up, I mean it was still paste up. Um, you still had a board. You mm. had to wax the type, even though I made it in house this time. You had to paste it up and align it. Sometimes I'd get a typo and I'd have to like hand place with tweezers a period <laughs> on a sentence or something um but uh but that was contextually the way it was and everybody was doing it mm. so we all suffered together and that was the, <laughs> it was the name of art <laughs> that's amazing and yeah. now it's done so easily sadly in the sense that like so vinyl's back it's been back right crazy in full force and um they can't keep them on the shelves. The, the factories can't keep up with, <coughs> with demand. And, um, but the mass production and the probably, I don't know, the mindset of creating CDs and just like this and mass, yeah. mass production, the art still suffers a little bit and you see it a lot. Um, people will have the money to, to print 
records, but they don't have something mm. that it takes to make a really nice one. And they just produce something. They're just cranking something out. And it's, um, it's nice to go back because it was so expensive. Yeah. You didn't mess around like that, right? You didn't just crank out some garbage artwork. I mean, maybe people uh, didn't, didn't like it. People did, but yeah. I, I like to think we, we took it to a higher level. Mm-hmm. When I say we, um, I'm talking about Larry Vigon. Just a backstory, just to give some context to my career. I graduated Art Center in 1987, mm-hmm. Art Center in Pasadena. And I graduated on a Saturday and started work Monday. Oh, nice. Yeah, I locked in this because my good friend Chris was an assistant to Larry as he was taking a, a, a semester off. Mm-hmm. He said, well, I'm going to be start, starting back up at Art Center. When you graduate, you should just take over for him. And I'm like, okay, cool. Wow. So I had that lined up, and I ended up staying with Larry for 16 years. Wow. <clears throat> Hopped right in. Hopped right in. So a <clears throat> uh, big part of what we did was albums and fashion advertising and... um. And but Larry had already had um, a kind of iconic status in Los Angeles mm. um, as a designer, having done Rumors album cover for Fleetwood Mac and Chicago's original album covers, and gosh, there's so many others. Um, so he was well connected with all the labels, mm. all the record labels. So he was getting a steady amount of work. But the production side of this needed the, a, a designer's eye and an assistant that can help design and produce it. Right. So. That's, wow, how fortuitous. Oh, great. <laughs> did you have a plan uh, besides that, before that, before this came about, did you have a plan post-art school? Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. I, I loved all of the curriculum at Art Center, and I liked that I got a full range of... Um, disciplines under my belt and showcased in my portfolio from um, from packaging, cologne bottle design, exhibit design, um, you know, mm-hmm. all kinds of graphic design, and even some computer graphics. At the time I was at Art Center, they had a $2 million graphic design computer called the Aesthetes, mm-hmm. which there was only three of them in the world, and two Whoa. of them were at Art Center. And you had two of them? Wow. Yeah. Huge. And um, so I was, I was warm to interactive uh, in the assistance of electronic um, computers and design. Mm. But when I graduated, none of that was really in yet. Mm. So it was all paced up. Yeah. Long was that, nights. Was that progression fought hard by the, say, the old guard? Where they, did they want to keep it? analog and not hop into computers yet or were the computers not quite there yet in the begin to begin with well when it came to typography easily computers were a huge help Mm -hmm. um and then when it came to actually laying out an album cover and there became software out there like quark express Mm -hmm. before indesign came around quark express quark express was like the original elite page layout program Mm mm-hmm and we could do the design now and have control over it in the studio. And then we would send it out and the production of it would happen. <clears throat> and the sophisticated nature of these computers at the time was allowing us to compose the entire layout. Mm-hmm. Do all of the typography ourselves. 
And when I say that as a designer, and I know it gets to be kind of nerdy, but I'm, when when you have to deal with so much copy, let's say for an album cover, mm-hmm. there's a lot of challenges in layout issues that you have to confront and try to decide how you're going to how to um, make it work in the composition of the design. Mm-hmm. In the past, when you ordered type and it came and you saw that maybe a paragraph wasn't looking right, it would be another day until you get another one. <laughs> so computer solved some huge production problems. Yeah. I could just change it in a matter of seconds. Yeah. And I had control. Yeah. So you saved an entire day. Yeah. Of waiting. Um, what was nice, though, is to witness... A byproduct of our working relationship, Larry and I, was that I gravitated towards technology, and he didn't as much, mm-hmm. which ended up being kind of a nice play in hindsight. As I look back, he still stuck to sketch pads, doodling, painting, mm-hmm. and I was the one on the computer. So my focus was all those things around production, um, graphic design issues, and his was more big concept, um, still experimenting with paints and inks. Mm-hmm. So I think he saw that resistance a good thing, and I ended up as well. Yeah. So. That's a nice, <clears throat> yeah, that's a great dichotomy. Yeah, it ended up being that way and just by virtue forward. of our gravitating towards what we felt like we wanted to gravitate towards. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with either one, right? It's just uh, you do you, and it exactly. works out. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. What's he doing these days? Uh, he's, uh, he lives in a Carpinteria with his wife, Sandra. Mm-hmm. You want to hear a quick backstory about Sandra? Yeah. Okay, Fleetwood Mac. Early days of Fleetwood Mac. Mm-hmm. It was started by Peter Green. And Peter Green was working with Mick Fleetwood, and they had a band, but they needed a bassist. Mm-hmm. And they eventually got John McVie, and the Mick of McVie became the Mac of Fleetwood Mac. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Peter Green's girlfriend was Sandra. Oh. And Peter Green wrote a song called Black Magic Woman. That was about Sandra. Whoa. And so that's Larry's wife, Sandra. Whoa. She's British, (laughs) has always hung with the band. And, um, and so my foray into album covers occasionally always saw, you know, a Fleetwood Mac project to come through. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like the one you told me before for the, uh, what was that? A greatest hits. Oh you want to jump into that? Oh my <laughs> God. Oh, this has a lot to it. Yeah. Okay. So I'm still green. I'm still, um, a few years into working with Larry and doing some album covers. Mm-hmm. And there was a scenario and I want to say it was something like Larry had already booked a trip to Europe, mm-hmm. but Fleetwood Mac's greatest hits was going to come out. And they needed an art director to art direct a photo shoot and mm-hmm. help get the album done. Mm-hmm. And also the tour book. So, um, well, the tour book was for the Behind the Mask tour in 1990. But the greatest hits. Larry wasn't in town and said, you do the photo shoot of the band. I'm, oh, cool. I, uh, I trust you, you can do it. <laughs> I'm like, Okay. I have to work with all these band members, uh-huh. their, their managers, groupies, and others in trying to get a photo shoot done. <laughs> <clears throat> photo shoot was supposed to take place at, um, at um, Stevie's house mm-hmm. in, I think it's Brentwood, or mm-hmm. 
um, one of the canyons. Huge freaking house. <laughs> Huge freaking house. I drop up, drive up in my VW Bug, <laughs> and um, I go under the guest house, and I pull into this beautiful cobblestone driveway. I go inside, and there's this living room set up with all of this stuff for the photo shoot. Hmm. Um, there was already this vision, I think, encouraged by the late Herbie Worthington, who was the original photographer for Rumors, mm-hmm. to do a picture of the band for the back cover that has them all standing together. It didn't matter that it was Stevie's house, but it just happened to be the best place to do it and to have all these really exotic kind of... They had all these um, big props and exotic stuffed animals and things, and they had all these things. And um, my job was to choreograph and art direct with the photographer to get this shot to work. Wow. Now, obviously, Herbie had already had a lot of experience with the band mm-hmm. and um, knew Stevie very well. And he was in control, but he was at this time now a hippie. And he was walking around in bare feet. Now I'm looking through the viewfinder of the camera, and he's got all kinds of lights and cables from the gear yeah. inside the shot. I'm like, Herbie, <laughs> I'm seeing all this stuff in the shot here. Uh-huh. Don't you think we should move it off to the side? He says, no, no, that'll all be done in retouching. I'm not going to move anything. We're fine. <laughs> so Fix it in we, do the, um, we do the photo shoot. Comes out great, but um, the particular shot that I think we got everybody looking good, mm-hmm. John McVie was not happy with this <laughs> shot. There's always one. Yeah. So <laughs> he was not happy with his expression, so we had to um, Photoshop him from another shot. It's funny I said that. So wow. instinctively I said Photoshop. Hello, this is before <laughs> Photoshop. We had to hire a retoucher yeah. to retouch this. And then back in the day, you did this on negatives. You didn't do it on prints. So how daunting is that? I'm not, I, it's I his job, sure and he was works. one of the best, and it came out good. So if anybody has the greatest hits album cover, and you look at the back cover, John McVie's head is from a different shot. <laughs> I was going to ask you earlier, too, how many little quirks like that on album covers you think you can identify? You know? But also, that whole experience, by the way, gave me an insight early on into just the overall vibe of being on a shoot with legends. Yeah. And they were all there with their managers. The managers are all there watching to make sure everything's done to their liking too. Mm-hmm. And there's groupies there who are helping with food and catering and things. And Stevie is walking everywhere pulling the, the power cord of a humidifier because <laughs> she was about to go on tour with the mm-hmm. band and she had to make sure her voice was right. That was fascinating to see. Wow. But there was a lot of gratuitous I don't want this to sound bad. I think it's just normal. Mm. Of everything you're through, you're they're doing is great. Mm. Oh, Stevie, you look fantastic. Oh, this is going to be so wonderful. Oh, this is just constant, constant yeah. coddling and <laughs> um, bunch of yes people. A bunch of yes people. <laughs> so the footage photo shoot comes out good, and um, <clears throat> and uh, but the front of the album, mm. we had a whole other idea <laughs> than the one that actually got executed. Yeah. We had talked to the band about this idea. Again, this is pre-Photoshop, so we had to discuss it first. Uh-huh. <laughs> about a baby, a child in black and white, shot from the side, reaching up to touch a crystal ball that's mm. hovering above him. And that that would make the cover. And they loved the idea. Stevie especially liked that vibe. Mm. So we get my sister to drive her niece up from San Diego. We get a studio in Costa Mesa to do the shoot. And... Um, uh, for the viewers at home, I've got the shot here that never made it onto the album cover. 
I'll take a picture of this yeah. too. Um, and um, mocked it That's up, so put fun. it on, put it on, got the photo shoot done, got a print made, put it up on the album cover as a proof of concept. Went to one of the recording sessions in Santa Monica of the band, showed it around, and once again, everybody liked it but John. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, John. Damn, John. Not to say goes, you're not well, the, right all the time, but goes, like, the crystal ball looks like a blob. The baby's looking at, <laughs> like he's touching a blob, and everybody's, everybody else is going, no, John, not John. He's touching a crystal ball. You can see a crystal ball. Uh, it's black yeah. and white. It's not going to look exactly like a crystal ball. <laughs> so, but it's, that's, so I, I go back to the studio. By this time, I think Larry's back, and we're dealing with the frustration that they may not like this cover. It's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Wondering what we're going to do next. And they messenger over messenger this pre-fax pre-email on a bike and messenger over yeah right on a bike and messenger over somebody in the band or some groupie or somebody associated with the band had gone to tower records on sunset boulevard mm. and one of the end of aisle displays that they often did back in the 80s and 90s um which was pitching some sort of album mm-hmm. somebody at tower cut uh, a simple shape out of foam core Mm-hmm. As a designer, it'd be called a dingbat. It's the simple little <laughs> shape that you usually use um, when you're doing greeting cards and things as a little symbol. Oh, yeah. That's what a dingbat is? Yeah, it's that kind of thing that... <laughs> it's hard to explain. It's like just a little graphic device. It can be like a spade shape. It could be a flower. Yeah, just and a miscellaneous thing. That's all it was. Yeah. And somebody took a picture of this white shape cut out of foam core sitting on a green background with whatever available light was happened to be in the shop at the time, <laughs> they got this print made and the band goes, Oh, that's the album cover. Let's just go with that. So I see this thing. And I'm like, you're, you're serious. Yeah. This isn't even art. It's just, you took a picture of somebody's foam core cut out of a <laughs> display. <laughs> so, where, where is I, and I actually had to hire my friend who's now an extremely successful fine artist, Mark Ryden to paint this thing. I said, Mark, you just have to make it look exactly. Mark Ryden painted that? Mark Ryden painted that with airbrush. (laughs) (laughs) Right? At least it's been redeemed with his name, I guess. I I don't even know if his name isn't even on that. uh, That's hilarious. That's what it is. And it's not uh, the original cover. How infuriating was that? How, mad uh, was your, how upset was your sister also? <laughs> oh, I know. Well, <laughs> evident by the fact that I brought the picture here, and yeah. what people don't know is this picture was repurposed for another project mm. for Warner, Warner Interactive. Oh, because it's theirs, right, at, at that point? Uh, that's a good point. I don't know. <sighs> Could have been, Maybe that was the reason. But we repurposed it for a tech um, um, brochure cover. <laughs> okay. <laughs> cool. Yeah, it's not the first time that stuff's done as a designer. One rejected an idea as an idea for something else. Oh, yeah, fair enough. But what a strange chain of events. Yeah. <laughs> and Mark Ryden did this. That's that's awesome. Crazy. It's so weird that, yeah, it is just some miscellaneous design. It's cool. And it, like, I don't know, it fits, too. But yours is so much better. Does it fit? Hold on. I get Look at I, the history of it's um, green, Fleetwood Mac album it's a covers. flower, you know? <laughs> The baby oh, no, touching the crystal ball would have been so Fleetwood Mac. Oh, it would have been significantly better. But but maybe it's also poetic that this is, I don't know, a greatest hits. And I don't know. Yours would have been better. <laughs> okay. Other funny story. Mm. Again, for the listeners at home, it's going to be a little difficult to understand this. <laughs> but 
Fleetwood Mac behind the mask tour. Mm-hmm. Um, I was left to design and put together the production of the tour guide, the tour book that mm-hmm. they sell at concerts. And in working with one of the associates with Fleetwood Mac to help the production of this go smoothly. Mm-hmm. And this person, Judy, was providing me the imagery and stuff that we'll use in the tour guide. And I think it's the nature of some of these kinds of things where you get a tour book and among other things of the band, you're seeing other pictures of them with family and them having fun maybe out and about. So you get a deeper sense of the band. Mm. Um, I'm doing the production of this. Again, paste up, wax, photos, pasting down, lots of time it takes. (laughs) It's probably about two in the morning. We have to get this thing done. And Judy is very sympathetic to the fact that I'm putting in so many hours on this, and it's very frustrating. Mm -hmm. But there's a couple of spreads in this tour book that feature a collage of band members with family, some of the extended family members, people you probably wouldn't even recognize as as just a fan of the band. Mm -hmm. But um, Judy goes, you know, Brian, I feel so bad that you're putting in so many hours. You you go ahead and put a picture in there. So I'm Hmm. like, Oh, well, that's nice of you. That's kind of weird. They said, nobody will know. You put a picture in there. <laughs> so I go to my desk, and I f- the only picture I find is a recent trip my dad and I did to Baja, Mexico, uh-huh. where we caught some, um, some Dorado on a deep-sea fishing trip. And we're standing on the beach, no shirts on, and I'm holding up a Dorado. <laughs> <laughs> that's in there. And you're in this thing? Yeah. Oh, no way. See, this is when I need video. <laughs> I know. Right? Check this out. Um, band members, band members, band members having fun with family, friends, good times. And what's the statute of limitations? Did anybody notice? No, because everybody in the band would have just accepted the fact that must have been some other band members. (laughs) There you are. Yeah. Uh, family member or extended family member. Yeah. It's just in a sea of other people. Yeah. Yeah. So in the many hundreds of thousands of tour books out there. That is me, in fact, holding up the Dorado for those who were wondering all these years. <laughs> who the hell? <laughs> and some super fan out there like, they're not in the family. Who is that? <laughs> oh, that's stuff. so cool. Fun stuff. The Behind the Mask tour. Yeah. What year was that? 1990. 1990. Wow. How fun. Yeah. <laughs> I had that's a couple nice. of... Uh, uh, photos end up on one ended up on a tape somewhere and another one ended up on like a single cover but online so it didn't they didn't even print it um the first one on a on this tape flattered as i was that they took it they edited the photo and they tweaked it made it look really terrible and i'm like why did they go with that oh that drives me crazy and then nobody knows like people who saw that and were Mm -hmm. at that show were like oh you know, I'm sure they'd see. Oh, he took that because I was the only oh. photographer there. It didn't look like that, though. It yeah. <laughs> looks like garbage. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't even give name creative it license to somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah, that well, happens. Yeah, <laughs> that wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> Stuff like that happens. Oh, uh, fun though. Yeah, I don't know. Never, I never worked on album art like that. Um, but it's fun to, I don't know cover shows and then do stuff with the photos and then you know promos and stuff like that but like album covers it's a whole different animal and especially at that time where you have to sit around and talk to people all day about what are we gonna do okay so sometimes the challenge is outlined for us Mm. 
Um, case in point, um, Carol King. Uh, it's her. Uh, it's the greatest hits album. Uh, no, it's the In Concert album. Mm. I don't remember what year this is. They provided us all this great black and white photography, live shots of photography done at a, one of the recent concerts. Oh, wow. And just told us to do what we can with that for the cover. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. They're great shots, and we don't have to like rack our brain with a deep concept. Mm-hmm. They just happen to let the liveliness of the photos hold the cover, and it does nice. it well. Cool. That's nice. So it's more about arrangement and uh, theme trying to pick the right ones. Did they send you just a stack of photos or uh, well the selects select from few? the uh. from the shoot mm. and any one of these could have made the cover alone but I found a way of composing two together that I think held its own mm-hmm. in a unique way. Um and then inside the booklet that unfolds um there's more photography that flows with the text. Mm. Uh so no that worked out well but that was an example where it's not Sometimes it's not heavy concept. Sometimes the direction from the record label kind of dictates what we'll do mm-hmm. just because they've, they've got a good idea already. They've already got a photo shoot behind them, and you know, sometimes that stuff just works out great. Mm. That's cool, too. It is very cool. Yeah. How fun. What was the first album you worked on? As I say, I think it was Ivan Neville. That was the first one, yeah. yeah it might have yeah. been Rick Springfield, mm-hmm. but I think it was Ivan Neville. And I remember this photo shoot, I was there while Larry art directed it, and it was a very unique concept that I never had seen done before, but we just, we essentially decided that there's going to be a kind of a symbolic representation of Ivan as a skeleton painted in ink, mm. and that would have a part in the design of the cover. During the photo session, we decided to use a transparency of this um, of this figure of this skeleton and, um, and illuminate it onto his body where his shirt is off. Oh. So you're seeing the bones and everything on his chest from the sketch. Yeah. And it's a very cool look. Neat. Yeah. Superimposed on a photo. Superimposed okay. on him during the shoot. So he could pose how he wanted with this superimposed on him. Oh, I see. Um, through like a gel just held in front of a light. Oh, that's something. so cool. Yeah. It's very cool. Wow. Uh, so that was that. Um, yeah, you know what? L- Larry put it best long time ago. I heard him say this and it resonated with me. He always, and I feel like I always in turn try to elevate up to somebody's intellect mm-hmm. and their ability to appreciate good creative concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, something might not be spelled out for them so obviously. Mm-hmm. Let them discover the beauty of it. Maybe it's not super obvious. Maybe that image of the hand-drawn skeletal figure um, being superimposed on his body. is not super evident at first, but then you notice it. And that kind of appeals to your higher intellect to be able to see that mm. and find it. And it's like an Easter egg. Yeah. You go, oh, I see. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes in the spirit of just mass production, the, the elevated potential of an album cover gets um, diminished. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That goes back to, yeah, what I was saying about newer albums, too. Mm-hmm. Even though they're printing on records now, yeah. or still, um, it's lost. Yeah. That exact sentiment is lost. Not often, but it's notice- that's noticeable. The Easter egg yeah. itself is that. You know, it's- and some of it, honestly, is a byproduct of the deadline. 
Um, yeah. as, an, as a designer early on, I hated tight deadlines. Like, mm. you're not giving me any time to think. Yeah. But now, I know that the tighter the deadline, the better the idea mm. has the potential. Yeah, has because your, your intuition kicks in, mm. and you don't have time to rethink it, and you go with it, and usually it's a good place to be. Mm. Um, so the nature of these deadlines for typical albums were, you know, we had to have them wrapped in like a couple of weeks. And it didn't give us a lot of time to, you know, stew on the cover. Yeah. Just come up with something great. Just yeah. do something cool. It's kind of nice. It, 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 you avoid getting lost in the weeds. Yeah. You don't want to think about, though, what was lost, the, the potential that was lost if you had one more week or... Yeah, you hours. can always go there. You can always go there. But, um, you know what? D- it, this isn't fine art. <laughs> <laughs> this is a business. This is design. Yeah. Design inherently is solving a business problem. Mm-hmm. We're trying to get the record uh, label what they need to get to production, make deadlines. Mm-hmm. The last thing they need is a designer going, I need another week. I don't <laughs> have anything yet. Yeah. Um, and I think that just... Ideas were flowing. Mm-hmm. So, very happy with what we turned out, with very little exception, actually. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. What was the... Oh, you didn't want to say that that was the biggest pain to deal with, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, what was the Fleetwood second? Mac. Yeah. <laughs> what was the second, then? Because... Oh, uh... God, I don't know what second. I just thought, before this podcast, I would think about the... And I want to say the worst was Fleetwood Mac. I don't like to use that term for them because they are, uh, they, they were tougher to please. Yeah, I wouldn't say worse either. No, no, I mean, no. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't that at all. That's a there rock was just, and a hard place situation. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. But without a doubt, the most comfortable person to work with was Bonnie Raitt, mm. uh, designing her Nick of Time album, which won a Grammy. Every day she came to the studio, it was about me. Hey, Brian, how are you doing? You know, wow. how, you, how was your weekend? Yeah. And it was just so comfortable to talk to her. And then it's the idea that we we're actually doing a project together seemed secondary. She was yeah. just so nice to talk to. Wow. And it just left an impression for such a long time. How great. Yeah, it was great. Just a totally casual, run-of-the-mill person, right? Just Yeah. And Nick of Time wasn't her first album. She had mm. many before. So she, the process was not new to her. So I think she just wanted to make sure the process was fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. And I mean get along with the person you're about to spend a bunch of time with. So yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. (laughs) What was the last one you worked on? Um, that's a good question. The last one I worked on, um, was probably one that I did independently, um, on my own. Uh, Rodney. Oh my God. What's his name? God, it's escaping me. But I did the whole thing on my own. He already had a record label. It was kind of an independent label. And um process was easy. He liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. It'll come to me. Rodney, 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 Rodney. It was, he's... Um, I first saw it as Rodney. Sadly, Danger I think it's a one-hit wonder, if, they, mm. if that. But he had the money, and he had the pull to get an actual album done. And, and CD, well, CD, never an LP. Yeah. And that was what that was. Cool. But, um, and then you've moved on since then to, well, when I met you anyway, it was Universal. Yeah, I mean, the trajectory from 
working on these projects and the years going by, you know, the, 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 the albums actually were really instrumental, I think, because they are miniature, quick branding projects. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, at its best, what you're delivering with each of these covers is something that encapsulates the essence of the artist or the album itself. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what a brand has to do. You're, you're, you're cutting through the clutter, in this case, like a record bin at a, at a you know, at oh, a record sure. store. Mm -hmm. And something about what you're delivering in that cover is going to hopefully captivate and provide all the necessity for you to pick it up and buy it. Mm -hmm. um, that's essentially what brands do every day. They want to cut through the clutter, provide something that gives you an alternative and unique look at something they're providing for you to buy their product. Mm -hmm. So having done hundreds of these early on gave me a sense of the larger issue of what branding is. And branding on a, on a larger scale than an album cover is that it just covers a lot more other touch points from mm -hmm. brochures to logo to website to um, whatever the product line is. Uh, in retail, it could be the design of the interior like Starbucks does. Mm -hmm. That everything that is done a good example is Apple. Everything Apple does is very Apple-like, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So growing early on into that philosophy um, helped guide me into a career that ultimately ends, not ends, sorry, <laughs> continues on into what I'm doing today, which is still solving design problems, but with a better sense of the grander brand issues of the day, mm -hmm. what has to be done for that client. And coming from the analog system of that, I guess, if that's the right word, um, to straight digital, yeah. pure technology now. Yeah. Uh, has that been a fun ride? No. Learning all that? <laughs> no, no. The, the, the competition has not been a fun ride. Mm. Let me encapsulate it this way. As I said, when I started, mm. um, things were very difficult to produce. Yeah. Because there were tools and knowledge for how to get things done mm -hmm. so that design, not merely the idea mm -hmm. that you're creating, but you know how to produce it. Mm -hmm. If you hired me back then to design a brochure, I would concept a cover. And then once I get sign off, I go to production and make it happen. That required the knowledge of certain kind of tools, mm -hmm. how to order type, how to wax, how to do paste up. Yeah. The advent of the computer eliminated all that and put the execution of design in the beholder and whoever has the computer, mm -hmm. whether they have a good idea or not. Now, when you got a computer, back in the day, when you got a computer and you could do design, to a lot of people that meant you could get it done. Oh. You could get it done. You got a computer, you can output design now. Yeah. Whether it's right or wrong. That's all you needed, right? That, that equation is not as big. Yeah. You, you know how to make it happen. <laughs> That's interesting. And it's like, no, you're still learning how this thing works and how to play with it and everything. There's still a need for concept, to a need to understand a client's business, mm -hmm. what you, is unique about their business and how to elevate that and amplify that mm -hmm. in design. And um, that was the biggest thing I hated about the computer, as mm -hmm. much as it was helping me every day. Yeah. It was it was giving my um, value less um, clarity. Interesting. To a lot of clients, they need a brochure. Can you get it done by this date? 
Yeah. I know a guy over here who can get it done by the state. Well, yeah, but is he good? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know he's got a computer. <laughs> I know he can get it done. It turns into just mass production. There was Well, yeah, the it, it's come full circle a bit. Yeah. The 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 desire to go to people that knew how to get design done has kind of come back in check. Mm. You now have to cut through the clutter and still be good at what you do in a, as a brand. Yeah. And you need professionals to understand that. That's funny you yeah. say that because when I was in high school, the big thing everybody talked about was becoming a graphic designer. Uh, going at a, getting out of high school, becoming a graphic designer, <clears throat> and a lot of washouts because it turned into not what people wanted to do. It's a lot more work. And then, you know, it, it sounded easy. I remember people thinking it sounded easy and getting into computers and getting into the art of it. Mm-hmm. A lot of non-artists thought they could do it and they ended up just washing out. And that I think hopefully, uh, to, to what you just said, the value of your work retained its clarity. Yeah. You hope. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a two way street. You yeah. hope that the client sees it that way too. Yeah. Which yeah. I mean, will they, you know, they're um, going to be divas about it. And yeah, I mean, it's the, you know, everybody's got different personalities in business. Mm-hmm. Some haven't changed some value we have to offer. That's why I hope in what I provide is a, you know, a lot of my work is word of mouth now. Mm-hmm. Almost all of it. So somebody who's already worked with me is providing somebody else some good input about yeah. what I can bring. Um, my website is not a selling point. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't advertise. I would rather get work from word of mouth anyhow. That's even better. Yeah, it's even better. Right. Yeah. Because you have just purely <laughs> credible voices. Yeah, people who've had a good experience. You. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, they say websites aren't really as uh, valuable anymore. Uh, it totally depends on the business. Yeah, yeah. For, for a designer, um, they should, it should be a follow-up um, to a meeting or a phone call. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're interested in working with me? Go to my website. You can see some of the stuff I've worked on, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. That or you meet somebody out. in a casual social space, mm-hmm. whatever. Oh, yeah, check out my website. I've got some stuff that might fit that. Mm. But it's never like, um, I found you on the web. Yeah, I'm no not, one ever just finds you in the wild. No, right? mm-hmm. yeah. no. Yeah. no. That's just not a thing. <laughs> no. You can go online and find out what it really takes. Yeah. Because a lot, lot of people are doing it. It's a whole lot of work. And it's not even, as in the past, this, um, this crazy, like, bunker-driven, um, crazy people thing. It's now a cool thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to it used think to about be this. prepper. Yeah, prepper yeah. and all that. Now it's become high style. Yeah. And to be ready. Architecture, architectural mm. ingenuity at, at its best. Yeah. But it's great. Josh. It's it's like just something else for people to do, you know, to focus on. Just like another creative outlet. Born yeah. from conspiracy theorist prepper stuff you know yeah but also i think the advancing um technologies with solar Mm -hmm. and the means by which you can have these things done efficiently um and finding water tables so that you can draw water from the ground and the technology that allows you to do that better to find it Mm -hmm. i don't know i think there's a lot of interesting advancements that allowed that to happen yeah 
um, and probably also just a, a network of shared um, case studies that people shared online. Mm. You know, it's, it reminds me a little bit of the trend of um, of retrofitting uh, vans to live in them and do yeah. away with the house. Just have these really cool mm. sprinter vans that are retrofitted to be your living space. Yeah, I think that was for the most part probably born out of the sharing network of people online who were doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the need to just avoid rent as it goes up well, constantly. Too. Yeah. And- yeah, people people make some really impressive stuff. I went down that rabbit hole recently of looking into that. Of looking into yeah, of of vans and just seeing what people come up with. And there are a lot of just lone wolves out there that have I forgot what they're called. They look like Range Rovers, but they're I think they're even bigger. Um, but it's same design. And people just live in this thing. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of vloggers that do this. I know um, the the sprinter the the sprinter vans are a popular shape too. Those are just like the sleek ones, right? That look like, uh, say, U-Hauls or... Well, the, it's the... Like Mercedes makes one now. Those, Those yeah. big, beautiful... They're they're really gorgeous. Yeah. Um, they look like double-decker buses, like half of a... Yeah. I, you know who has, for some reason, I don't know why I know this, but for some reason, a lot of um, bicycling teams use these. Mm. Um, in town here in San Dimas is, um, is the bike shop in cycle mm-hmm. and they've got one of those and they're beautiful. And I know an artist friend who bought one and is still having it retrofitted because um, so cool. they want to move out and just travel mm. and live out of this thing. Some friends of mine are doing that. He's living off his, uh, his GI bill that also lets him live in parks, national cool. parks for free or for like $8 a month or something like wow. that. So he did that. He retrofitted some van and, is just living out of it uh, with his girlfriend. Very cool. And yeah, just hopping from park to park. How Love nice it. is that? <laughs> that sounds great. What a dream. I, I feel like I'd get tired of that. I, I, that's what I'm wondering. <laughs> At a certain point, you might be going down the road going, this is getting old. Yeah. I'm not sure I can do this. Yeah. You know, <laughs> pulling into gas stations and fast food restaurants, go to the bathroom so you're not using your portable potty in your thing and... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if he has it. You have no yeah, mail address. <laughs> um, yeah, and things frankly, change when you go down that road. And then, frankly, the cost of gas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that puts a stop to that That's one That's prohibitively quick. expensive <laughs> at this point. Right. <laughs> uh, so you had a segue. <laughs> but I was, gonna, <laughs> I was coming up with one just now. <laughs> but I want to so, hear yours. D- my, my segue... Because something we we've talked about more than music, dude. Ever, I don't even. <laughs> this could go into five parts. Hmm. Here's my segue. Okay, <laughs> did you know that there's a significant number of musicians who've had UFO sightings and experiences? No, I've heard of a couple. John Lennon with his then girlfriend May Pang. August 23rd, 1974, mm. from his terrace in Manhattan, they both witnessed an inverted cone shape UFO that had a blinking light on it. Whoa. They saw it for a while. Mm-hmm. And in the lighter notes of one of his albums, he wrote the details of his sighting. Oh. Sammy Hagar um, claimed an alien abduction from his bedroom when he was 18. 
Really? Yes. Morrissey. Morrissey. With a bunch of friends in London witnessed a fleet of UFOs overhead for 10 minutes. Oh, my God. He said it changed his life forever as it relates to government conspiracy. He has never mentioned that to my knowledge. Oh. (laughs) Well, then, you need to get the book. Yeah. The Paranormal World of Music by Grant Cameron. Oh. And he goes into detail about uh, Neil Young's After the Gold Rush lyrics, Mm. which which mentions spaceships. Whoa. So this is definitely, man. So artists are seeing this too, which is great. Oh, yeah. Grant, when he speaks about it, I've heard him in podcasts. Um, He goes into even further detail than I did about musicians and somehow they've gotten, in some cases, like a higher being influenced their music Mm -hmm. or their writing for a particular song. They had a visitation. Uh, Yeah, it's crazy. But John Lennon's is a very famous one. Mm. I never heard that one. So he sees an inverted code. I think it's even in his Wikipedia. Huh. I I never went down... He was my least favorite Beatle, but uh, not for any bad reason. I just preferred John. Yeah. Not John, George. <laughs> um, so I always l- read more about him, but um, uh, so, yeah. Inverted Cone in what? New York. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like my first thought is, oh, he saw an antenna, but he knows what an antenna looks like. No, no, no. <laughs> um. Look, and it's and it's funny because when you talk about musicians and especially these guys, mm-hmm. you go, "Well, come on, they're all dropping acid, probably." Yeah, but the, some of them have details around what they saw, and the fact that even Morrissey saw it with his friends and for ten minutes—that's amazing. Yeah, I'm not friends with Morrissey, but that doesn't. No, but he's, but a, I'm a, he's a big name. Yeah, he's a yeah. big name, and I'm a big fan of the Smiths and a big fan of Morrissey. Tons of interviews and whatnot. Just big fan in general. That doesn't mm. seem like something he would lie about, you know? He well, seems like a pretty honest person. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> okay, so cat's out of the bag. I've, I follow the subject and have been for 30 years mm-hmm. to the point where I've just been doing my own investigation. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, all, th- there is a lot to be um, answered to if you're going to claim such crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. So... Before you go and say it, you you probably imagine people like John Lennon know. Um, that's going to be a tough one for people to absorb. Yeah. <laughs> so um, now that's changed. Today, it's the stigma's fallen away. It's a very serious subject now. And as a matter of fact, as we speak, there's a bill in the House and Senate that's creating a new office that's mm. going to be um, creating a report. It was supposed to be due yesterday, but I've heard it's a few days late. Um, hmm. And according to one investigative journalist who I follow, he said that um, half of the sightings in this report are unanswered. So, um, and all the people that saw in a closed door session last year, um, some of this material and even a video, a particular video, they came out like deers, deer with a, in the headlights. These people were shocked. Mm about what they saw. Um, so this is quite a segue, but <laughs> <laughs> this is the, the most amazing subject right now. And 
when I got into it, I fell into it. Um, not having an experience or seeing anything. I just was fascinated by the mystery of it. Mm-hmm. When I was in junior high school, I won an award for my story I wrote about Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. I decided I was going to write about Bigfoot, and I got a book on Bigfoot, and I read it, and I could not believe what I was reading. I was like, all these people that had all these things happen to them that went on on these trips to look for them or they you know, t- entire towns have seen them. Like, this doesn't, this is weird. I never knew this. Yeah. And I would not have known this if I did not read this book. Mm-hmm. And I come to find out a lot of people feel that way about this UFO subject. Mm-hmm. They, they think they know. Well, if it was, here's how this script usually goes. If it was that big of a deal, it would be on the news. Yeah. And now <laughs> I can say in equivalent, it is on the news. Yeah. It's been on the, all the major <laughs> news, including 60 Minutes. Yeah. And they're telling you the government is now acknowledging the reality of this phenomenon. Mm. But if I p- pluck anybody off the street right now and say, did you know that there's the acknowledgement that UFOs are real and the phenomenon is real and we don't understand it? Mm-hmm. And the highest level of government intelligence has come out and acknowledged it openly? Yeah. No? I'm sure they would say no. Yeah. Because who, who's followed it until very recently? This is this well, was crazy talk. Hopefully, by virtue of it being on the news, you wouldn't have to quote follow it. Now it's being yeah. delivered to you. And yeah. Hopefully, if you're watching the news, mm-hmm. um, the stigma has fallen away. Um, it's now a subject that we need to talk openly and seriously about. Mm-hmm. So, I fell into it a little bit with the help of my brother, who I remember him coming into the house one day and he had read a book about alien abduction. Mm-hmm. And it was a book by Bud Hopkins. And he was like blown away by the case studies that were in this book. I mean, he's telling me, Brian, this, this sounds really serious. Mm. And it kind of piqued my interest a little bit. And um, I remember um, there was going to be an investigator that was going to give a talk uh, nearby. And me and my brother went to see him. Little did I know this investigator would end up being my friend for about 20 years. Wow. Um, and he's now since passed, but he he was former uh, Air Force and uh, a computer programmer, very intelligent, and he had been investigating the subject since the 50s. And what he was telling me was blowing my mind. It's mm. like, I wanted to tell everybody on the street, you should go listen to this. This is incredible. Yeah. And it's not just, you got to take so-and-so's word for it because I trust them. Yeah. It's like, no, there's evidence. Yeah. Um. Which has always been hard to come by. It's hard to come by, and for the most part, it's always, for the most part, it's anecdotal. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part. As of late, we've gotten the Tic Tac footage. Mm-hmm. Um, we've gotten some other Navy footage. By the way, the Tic Tac event that happened off the coast of San Diego in 2004, I've spoken to all the key people in person. Mm-hmm. Um, the radar operators, um, the guys who were on the ship when the film came in and what they all saw, that, by the way, that tic-tac footage they show on the news, that grainy black and white gun camera footage, mm-hmm. that's, the real one is very high resolution. Oh. Yeah. Jason Turner on the USS Princeton was the one who saw it on a big screen. Mm-hmm. And he said, what you're seeing on the news is nothing like what I saw. I saw it and it's crystal clear. Yeah, I always had a feeling like they're not showing the best version of no. this thing, are they? No, they're not. <laughs> and when everybody says, hey, why is it always blurry? Then I agree. It's like, yeah, they're showing you the blurry crap. Yeah. 
<laughs> they want to give uh, plausible deniability yeah. themselves. Like, oh, it, somebody messed with it. Yeah. Or it's not ours. Yeah, so I was. I, I remember it was Christmas 1989. I'd gotten a radio for Christmas, and I was laying in bed, um, and I was able to pick up a radio station in Las Vegas called the Billy Goodman Happening, and they had Bob Lazar on. Mm. And hopefully by now a lot of people do know who Bob Lazar is. Uh, the physicist who worked at Area 51, Site S4. Mm. Um, and this guy's on the radio, and he's fielding questions from people, and he's talking about the program he worked on at this facility. Mm. I'm like, wait a minute. This guy sounds like he's believable. <laughs> this sounds amazing. He's like talking open, talking openly about this. How is this possible? Yeah. And I was so glued to that because it wasn't fringy. He was talking about mechanics and propulsion systems in the and the scientific dynamics of how this craft flies because he worked on it. Mm -hmm. And then you would occasionally get people calling in on the radio show who'd say, yeah, I worked on something too. And these people sound believable. And then I'm going, okay, all this like nut job, tinfoil hat thing, mm -hmm. there's probably a place for those people to have their voice. This is not those people. Yeah. <laughs> This is not those people. So this was 1989, and I was glued then, totally glued to the subject. I needed to know more. Yeah, but um, he it's quite uh, a subject. He was one of my uh, in the beginning introduction to to that whole world. Mm -hmm. The first one was I was in sixth or seventh grade, and I just found this book, UFO sightings or something like that. I can't remember what it was called. It might have been abduction, and it was just every story. About yay thick, you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. 200 pages about every story that they could fit in there. The Kelly Hopkinsville encounter, the the uh, Betty and Barney Hill, all the classics. Yep. Um, and I was hooked. Yeah. And then I would fall asleep to uh, Art Bell, AM yeah. 640. Yep. And he had, I don't know if it was new or if it was a repeat, but uh, he had Bob Lazar on. Mm-hmm. And that was my intro to Bob Lazar and that whole world. And I, I'll never forget how casual he sounded when speaking about this and telling mm -hmm. the story. And I always just had this feeling, he's telling the truth. I don't know this guy. I've never met him. He's telling the truth. I believe he's telling the truth. Yeah. And little things that he would say, like he talked about uh, seeing one of the craft just hover in place right outside mm -hmm. of the hangar. And he's like, this may not be impressive to anybody uh, seeing, you know, what that would look like, but the amount of energy it would take to just sit there silent, mm -hmm. you know, a foot off the ground. He's like, that takes incredible amounts of engineering and we don't know how they did it. And just as simple as that. It just sounded real, you know? It's not just Bob, though. I know of seven people now who've worked at that facility. Mm -hmm. um, so, so often the Bob Lazar story seems to be talked about in a vacuum, that it's all about Bob and his story and whether or not the facility that it worked at exists or not. Mm -hmm. Well, we just have to take Bob's word. No, there is a lot of anecdotal stories and evidence. And I say evidence because a friend of mine went out in 1990 outside of Area 51 and got an, a great photo mm -hmm. of a saucer flying over S4. So if it wasn't for Bob, we wouldn't know 
of that facility mm-hmm. and that location and that they're testing these craft. Um, so you start connecting dots that start to formulate a better um, satisfaction you have that his story is probably true. Mm-hmm. But it takes work sometimes. You have to be very interested in the subject and you can't just read books and read stuff online. You have to go and talk to people. Yeah. You have to go. It doesn't take a lot of work. For me, it's really funny. The, the easiest thing I use to talk to people is Facebook. Really? I befriend people on Facebook Messenger and then I ask them questions mm. and they talk to me. <laughs> and then sometimes it leads to a phone call um, and then friendships. Um, most recently, the investigative journalist, formerly with 60 Minutes, um, Ross Coldhart, mm. who's in Australia. And uh, he got into the subject a few years ago and has not looked back. And I helped corroborate some some of the details of a case he worked on. And we remain friends. And um, it's been great to talk to him. Wow. Yeah. How uh, How forthcoming are people when you reach out to them? Are they? Well, it's a comfortable thing now. It's a comfortable subject to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the repercussions are nearly as strong as they used to be. Mm-hmm. I think by virtue of the fact that there's some high-level government scientists who have been on podcasts mm-hmm. and interviews, like um, Stanford uh, professor Dr. Gary Nolan, mm-hmm. who's been on Tucker Carlson, talking for like 45 minutes about this program he was working on with the CIA. Yeah. This is really revelatory because now we're getting extremely high-level PhDs talking very openly about this. Yeah. So it depends. Um, there's some people I talk to and they, they say off the record and then they say something to me and I totally quit. That's cool. Got mm. it. But uh, for the most part, the people I've talked to, see, most people I talk to, I'm trying to corroborate information. Right. I'm trying to offer insight and corroborate. I'm not trying to tell them to, I'm not trying to ask them to tell me a secret necessarily. Right. But so um, that changes the dynamic, right? They're not they're they're not on guard as much, right? If they're not if they don't see you as somebody just trying to extract information or Yeah, no, that's pin not, them on pin something on them. Yeah, that probably is a big turn off to a lot of people. Yeah. Some guy they don't know even coming in that they don't even know coming in and just asking bold questions. Yeah. No. Especially And you have to so, earn that right. Right. You have to <laughs> <laughs> cultivate some friendships or Yeah. However you would go about that. So 30 years ago, this was a very weird taboo subject. It was 30 years ago. It was very different. And there was a lot of repercussions. Mm. When people were coming out and talking about things, there were repercussions. I have many stories, including friends of mine and myself, Mm. who had things happen to them when I started to come out and talk about things. That's Mm. why I I have not done, with the exception of tonight, I've Mm. not done any podcasts any interviews, I don't write books, I don't write stories. Um, I stay kind of to myself, and I network with a few high-level re- researchers and investigators. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty safe, right? It's safe, but in the larger world of investigators, they think that that's not helpful. Mm. Because there's a small group of us who all want to collaborate to get the truth out, and when you remain below the radar, not wanting to come out and tell your side of the story, yeah, that doesn't help. Yeah, you know. But it's a marathon; it's not a sprint. Very good, right? Yeah, <laughs> you have to. <laughs> we got to play the game. 
Well, I mean, in all honesty, to a certain point, it's I'm trying to find a truth. And the truth is forming. And a lot of people say the more you get into this, the more ambiguous it gets because mm. there's so many unanswered questions. But there is a truth there, and it keeps you going, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, no, there's a truth forming. There's a truth forming, and I'm not sure any one person knows the whole truth, to be honest. Yeah. But, you know, that's, that's a long story. The way it's... Lo- <laughs> <laughs> the, well, we know that there is a government cover-up, Yeah. right? There is a government cover-up, which infers that somebody must know but some people who've come out who used to possibly work with those people tell the same story. We don't know any more now than we did in 1947. Mm. We've made some advancements in some technologies. Um, we know more about some of the species that are visiting us. By the way, it's not just one. Mm-hmm. But getting an answer to everything about the subject is sounds like it's very elusive. Yeah. And there are just, there are so many versions of each story, too. Are they earthlings? Are they from from a distant past? Are they from other planets? Are they with, what, 50 plus species that have been uh, reported? None of them are from Earth? I always imagine some, ever since seeing the abyss, some situation like that especially since we've only explored like less than 5% of the ocean. Yeah, so you know what Justin, this this opens up a, a paradigm of of thinking that we have to all go through. You mm. just mentioned a movie. Mm. We're we're sitting on the precipice of trying to understand now mm. finally this weird subject. But everything about the subject has no relationship to what we already know. Mm-hmm. We're not conditioned to understand what a real UFO really does look like or a real alien if it walked in the door. Mm-hmm. We'll probably, our mind will probably go back to something we can explain it away to. Oh, that's a prop or that's a plane. Yeah. Um, the idea that we think we will know the answers, our brains and our, our, our um, natural inclination is to fall back on something we can relate to. Mm-hmm. I mean that because I've heard some very, very compelling testimony of people who have eyewitnessed craft, mm-hmm. been up close to it. And sometimes the description sounds like it's fake. Interesting. How so? Well, you know, it's a triangle. It's a black triangle sitting there. Well, And that's that the best I could come that, up with. That's, that's it. Yeah. I mean, it could have been a pie. But God forbid a real UFO happens to look like a pie tin. Uh-huh. <laughs> Because <laughs> we've been thinking that was a pint in the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because no, we I, don't. There was a no. famous story too of the guy who oh, there's who manufactured that one, right? He was throwing. Uh, uh, depends on who you're talking about. Because there's some people that that Ed Walters, Billy Meyer. Uh, I don't remember the name, but okay. he got busted. I think doing this, somebody figured depends. out how he did it. They recreated it, and then he came out and was like, "Oh yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly how he did it." And it was throwing like pythons, something like that, yeah. and he. Just got a snapped a photo of it, black and white. It looks like it's in right. motion, which it is. And for every other reason, it looks right real. You know, there's some pretty compelling images I've seen. Not the least of which is the one my friend took with his mm. camera. Yeah. Um, but if one landed on the White House lawn tomorrow, the mm. proverbial you know land on the White House lawn, mm. we would think that it's um, a Hollywood stunt. Yeah. 
I don't think any of us would be able to recognize what an actual UFO alien visitation looks like. Yeah. Which is not part of our <laughs> visual vocabulary. Yeah, everything, our concept. Yeah. My, uh, and not to keep harping on Bob Lazar, but he had that one story about when he was in, he called it the sport model. Yeah. Right. When he was in it, he said, everything here is foreign. The design of this thing, the fact that there are, are no seams, this is this seems to be one piece, mm-hmm. this entire ship, and these little divots that may be for holding beings, they may be seats, they may be, he can't, he's like, mm-hmm. I don't know what this is. He said the one thing he could relate to was the uh, honeycomb door. Yeah, the, ha- the hatch to the bottom level. Yeah, and he's like, oh, I, I know how that works, yeah. and that was it, was the door. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only thing you could conceptualize. Everything in my research is pointing to the fact, not the fact, I can't say the fact, that these craft are um, symbiotically related to whoever is flying them. Mm-hmm. Um, your intelligence as a being is what's in control of them doing what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, everything seems to be pointing to that direction. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know what that means to the sport model at S4 that flew for Bob. Mm-hmm. Who was in that? How did that even work? Was somebody even in it? Or mm-hmm. was it done remotely somehow? What was the one that my friend photographed over the mountains? That's now a higher elevation. That's that's tricky. Because yeah. now you're taking this this coveted, recovered thing, or maybe we built it, and you're flying it way up there, and it's defying the laws of physics. Um no, it's crazy, but mostly what I hear is that it's a it's a um it's an intelligence connecting device to the human being. Interesting. Yeah. Somehow. <laughs> Somehow. No, yeah, telepathically something. A lot of the answers to that mysterious question about the actual reality of the subject can better be concluded by studying the people who experienced it yeah um that's the most important work i think it is the people who are experiencers who've Mm. had um abductions have been taken on craft they have the answers that we won't get from the government Mm -hmm. and this raises another um side subject called the mill lab phenomenon um mill lab is short for military abduction Mm. So, lest we all have already freaked out over this weird subject, it can get a lot weirder when you talk about the fact that some people are being abducted by our own military, sometimes with aliens, sometimes with not, not with aliens. Sometimes they're taken to a place where aliens are waiting for them. They hand them off to the aliens. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. But um, some of the best experiencers, namely one of them is uh, Melinda Leslie, who's been on Coast to Coast, She's had eyewitnesses to some of her experiences, but she's now started to take the um, take the um, the input um, of a lot of other experiencers and started to chart out where this seems to always be leading. Um, a lot of experiencers talk about being taken on a craft and then shown how to fly it, like they're supposed to know how. Oh. Melinda has been shown this many times. Yeah. So she's charting out some common threads in some of these experiences for her testimony that starts to paint a picture 
and maybe it's just with a narrow demographic of experiencers, that they all are being taught how to fly a craft. And they all say, I just know when the time is right, I'll know how to fly one. Like hmm. something's going to happen in the future. I know I'm going to have to fly a, a UFO. Mm-hmm. I know how to do it. And so what happens in the mill lab scenario is sometimes these people are legitimately taken by, as weird as that sounds, legitimately taken by aliens, <laughs> brought back, and then they're reabducted by military, and they're grilled for what they learned from the aliens. Oh, As a kind of backdoor way that the intelligence community, CIA or whoever, can find out more about the phenomenon by grilling the abductees. Yeah. Now, I'm close to this part of the subject because my earliest days when I got into the subject back in the the early 90s, Mm -hmm. I immediately got into this aspect. And I interviewed some of these people who are regularly having military abductions. And I've seen some anecdotal information that leads to the fact that this is happening to them. Mm -hmm. And that is... That reveals this idea that the reabduction happens with military in secret mm-hmm. and they're grilled about what they know reveals partially where we may be with this subject. And to the, to the credit of those who say we don't know any more than we did in 1947, they may be right. Yeah. If this program is what it sounds like it is, that we're still trying to figure it out. And they're so they're not that I that would suggest that the military and, and these beings are not necessarily in cahoots, right? Or because, yeah, no, not in cahoots. Yeah. In, 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 in some circumstances, there's one episode of a woman who lived in the Antelope Valley near Lancaster, and she had a visitation in the middle of her living room, mm-hmm. and there's the beings. She's a regular abductee, and she knows her. She knows her abductors. Mm-hmm. She knows her alien species people. She knows them well. Yeah. She knows the tall guy. She knows the little guys, and they came into her living room one time, mm-hmm. which has apparently happened many times. She goes, "This time there was Air Force outside on my back deck of my house, talking to them and telling them what to do to her." Whoa. And. There was more than one. There mm. was some others there too. But immediately there was this idea that there's this cooperation. If I'm to take this as it was described, mm-hmm. <laughs> there was a cooperation between these entities and this military force. Mm-hmm. And they wanted her. They were trying to take her. They needed the aliens help in getting her. And this guy is standing there in his uniform which sounds strange unto itself. If you are going to be covertly partaking in such a weird thing, why would you be wearing your uniform? Right. Very strange. Yeah. Unless you're not um, afraid of getting caught. Melinda Leslie, who's the experiencer I was speaking about earlier, is friends with a number of these mill lab experiencers worldwide. One of them recently in the UK provided her some video footage of a mill lab a person in their house. And he had set up already, because he's been having these episodes, these security cameras in his house. And he has one low on the floor underneath the bed. And um, this picked up the guy walking into his room. And you can see he's got military fatigues around his, he's got, it's like ankle low and down. Mm -hmm. He's got military fatigues on and these special military, like slipper booties 
to be quiet. Oh. And they're, it's really wild that they got footage of this guy in the house. That's what I look forward to, like all the little mistakes. That yeah, they, they are there. Yeah, right? Because they're not perfect. They're not perfect. The the way that, again, Bob Lazar, the, they couldn't completely erase his story or his, uh, his, his history, his education, his work history and all, all that. Somebody still recognized him. With this, there's got to be people report the, the men in black and have mm-hmm. video footage of these mysterious creature, creatures, the people mm-hmm. in, in black suits. And it's like there's mistakes are always made. I want to see those mistakes, you know? I think there's, again, when you dive into the subject and you mm. start investigating, you find some of that stuff never makes it to the light of day of people outside the subject. Mm-hmm. No, Most people are not that interested. And I was reading something about how that if they were to come out tomorrow that, yeah, aliens are real. Um, we've been communicating with them for 100 years and um, they're, yeah, they're out there. A lot of people are just so busy with their lives. They're like... All right. Right. Whatever. And they'll just move on. I admire those people. (laughs) (laughs) I would be absolutely excited, terrified, everything. It would be a major sea change. Yeah. I've been into this since I was a kid. And I, this is amazing stuff to me. I can't imagine just turning a blind eye if they were to come out and admit it. And also there's growing evidence that it's, it is both here and outside our, um, you know, solar system. Mm-hmm. Because one thing the government has acknowledged openly, and Dr. Gallery Nolan did on Tucker Carlson um, as well, is that there's the undersea um, craft that are seen going in and out of water, mm-hmm. what, they, what they call transmedium, where these things are going close to the speed of sound underwater, which is supposed to be impossible. Mm -hmm. And as Gary says, without any cavitation behind the craft, which is supposed to be impossible physics. Yeah. It's not interacting with the water at at all. all. No. Yeah. So there's supposedly a tremendous amount of undersea um, um, evidence as well that this is happening, and which begs the question, how do we resolve the idea that we've always been expecting that they come from far away on these craft. Mm -hmm. Well, no, they might've been here long before we even, you know, came about as a species. Yeah. 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 And going back to what you said about conceptualizing with things that we already know about the abyss or say world of the worlds where they were buried for centuries Mm. and they eventually emerge and wipe us all out or try to, it makes me wonder how fictional those stories actually are. The abyss. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, transmedium craft going through, going in and out of the ocean, that's the abyss, mm-hmm. which came first. I'm sure it was, uh, was it the stories of these craft or was it the movie? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'll give you a little um, inside knowledge on something. Uh, my friend Don and I, um, well, he mainly started a bulletin board on UFO research back in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. It was called Transcendental Communications. And it was in the dial-up days. You dial up to a bulletin board. You can leave messages and share and chat in mm-hmm. forums. And this was specifically on UFO research. As a matter of fact, he tried to keep a robust membership where he would encourage people to like sign up to be like, 
you know, real members. Mm -hmm. And by doing so, you get a little background about who these people are that are always logging in. I remember him telling me a significant number of people that were particularly in his bulletin board were Hollywood writers. Mm. They were clued into the subject early on. Yeah. And were interested in this obscure new methodology of dial-up forums of finding out what they can about the UFO subject. And, and completely poaching ideas. Well, from... th this forum, at least ours, it got some very, very high-level people. Mm. Um, military, aerospace, who regularly were on there and chatting with us. One of them I was able to talk to offline mm -hmm. who worked at a, um, a radar station uh, just outside Fairbanks, Alaska. Mm -hmm. It's called a state and station. And it's, it's, it's an extension of NASA. It's a deep network, space network, um, satellite tracking station. And they had the most advanced camera systems. And he said every once in a while, out of nowhere, guys in suits would show up into our offices, tell us to point our cameras and radars to a certain direction in space, turn on all the telemetry data recording devices, mm -hmm. and then give them all the tapes, and they would leave. Whoa. And he said there was one time where they... Um, that they, they, oh, they got a call from Fairbanks Airport. Mm -hmm. Hey, one of your satellites is buzzing our, our runways. Like, what does that even mean? Mm -hmm. And so they directed their camera towards that, and they got an amazing picture of this UFO, he told me. He got a picture of a UFO at the Fairbanks, you know, the runway. And he made a picture of it. Uh -huh. And sure enough, it's one of these stories. Shortly thereafter, these guys show up, confiscate everything. Yeah, yeah. crazy stuff. Were they always so good about coming back and confiscating all that stuff? How often did people, do you, do you hear about people smuggling? They, somebody got a copy out before the men in black show up. You know, the men in black thing, it, it, it has a lot of airplay, but um, it's, not, it's not always the case. The, the, the people that sometimes come and infiltrate somebody after they've had an experience mm -hmm. it's always a men in black thing oh no 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 oh no something super casual then something well, uh yeah i i guess the the point is that sometimes you'll get somebody that just tears up your place or doesn't tear it up just looking for information mm -hmm. not that they come to the door dressed in a suit yeah um in various ways this happened to my friend don mm-hmm uh, where some things were taken from his place that were UFO-related and nothing else was disturbed. Right. Yeah. Things were just missing. Yeah, and phone lines cut, phone lines tapped. I had my phone lines tapped. That's another story <laughs> for part two or part seven of this discussion. <laughs> I will make time. <laughs> but, um, but no, I, I, I don't think that this idea that you, you openly found something and you're confiscating to keep it to yourself, and then somebody shows up at the door, the black suit is always the case. Mm. That's all I'm saying. Hmm. Yeah. I like to think that people got away with things. 
And yeah, I hope they that's did. Tr- I hope that's true. That's yeah. absolutely true. <laughs> Evident by so much um, that's leaked recently, mm-hmm. um, documentation and things that have le- reached that have leaked from people, sadly, who passed on and left these archives of amazing material that nobody's going through. I'm sure. Well, <laughs> luckily for the estate of Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the former astronaut, mm-hmm. um, the people at the estate called somebody who knew they'd be interested in this material. Oh, So from cool. that, we got uh, the Wilson Davis memo leak. Um, we got some notes, uh, Oak Shannon notes, and some uh, other things. And, you know, those never got confiscated by somebody who's men in black. But then again, it's Dr. Ed- Edgar Mitchell. He's an astronaut. He's a legend. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's really let him be. Maybe. Let him let him look crazy. If well, he's already dead. So. Yeah, but let his legacy fall apart or something. You know, well, let the, them fall on their own sword. Yeah, but the nature of the material that was found is is really legitimate stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, but I mean, the government letting him quote unquote discount himself by just letting these crackpot ideas or crackpot things come out that nobody will believe. But that one person who does do their due diligence and goes through his stuff and like, and, and, and finds that evidence, deciphers it, goes through the papers and all those things. Maybe they don't expect anybody to do that. Oh yeah, maybe. Or there's just so much of it. They can't track it all. Yeah. (laughs) And they'll just let it go. They're like, nobody's going to ever get to this either. Yeah. You know, on that note, what happened to the people leaking these videos from, the Nimitz and That's not leaked. The, it was wasn't that leaked? I thought that well, was leaked. It was, it was ushered carefully out by um, Chris Mellon, mm. former Deputy Secretary of Defense for Intelligence. Mm-hmm. He's taken. I think he's openly taking credit for the, being the one that helped get that out. Carefully. So the term out. "leak" isn't quite quite the work or the mm. word for it. Um, he had the um, the clout, I think, to to arrange this to happen yeah yeah to me a leak sounds like there's no name behind who made it happen Mm. i imagine yeah a leak as in there was that triangular one that was going around it was uh in night vision Mm -hmm. you could barely see it it was just a blinking light kind of in the distance Mm -hmm. well it looked like it was right up on top of the ship that was leaked correct me if i'm wrong that was yeah i think that might have been the one jeremy corbell was talking about with the pyramids? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they said it was a pyramid, but you couldn't... The soldier said tough. it was, but yeah, you can't tell me from to the see. video. Yeah, it yeah. looks like a triangle for sure. It's hard. It's just really hard to understand those things. Yeah, but what happened to the to the person take? They say the person who shot that footage was with his own cell phone. How is that guy not in the brig or dead or something, you know? I, I wonder what happened to those people. Is he still around? Does anybody know? Has anybody heard from There's this guy? There's a lot of weird inconsistencies. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the Nimitz encounter, the Tic Tac event, you know, there's so many cases where the military sees things and then they're debriefed and told not to say anything. Mm. It happens constantly. Yeah. It has happened in the history of the subject. Um, and we find out about it later when somehow it leaks and then there's other people fess up that it happened. That Nimitz encounter was interesting because I was waiting to hear from uh, 
Gary Voorhees, mm-hmm. when I spoke to him, he he told me nobody there there was immediately a helicopter that was flown out and landed on the ship mysteriously sooner than expected, by the way, mm. and confiscated the um, data recorders, uh, the bricks. But that that suggests that somebody higher up maybe knew this event had just happened mm-hmm. and they need the material. Yeah. So they were Usually what would have happened is they would have taken the key personnel in the craft who saw this, they'd get him in a room or whatever, and individually grill them that that's not going to be talked about. Yeah. Gary said this never happened. This to me, in my experience doing this for 30 years, sounds like a break in the protocols mm. and that there is a new kind of push to relax some of those accounts to let people openly talk about things. And it makes me think that there's two camps and I've always heard there's two camps in DC mm-hmm. and in the intelligence community. There's the camp that's ready to let this out and there's the camp that's saying, no, we still can't. Yeah. And I think at times we see evident by this kind of scenario, one camp is winning. The other one's not. Yeah. And it's because it makes latter. no sense. Yeah. It makes no sense that that kind of event potentially witnessed by hundreds of people on the ship mm. wouldn't go without being told you can't talk about it. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense to me. It's got to be a break in the system. Yeah. There's no way that that old mentality is still holding up of keep it, keep it quiet. Don't mention anything. Everybody agrees with this. There's no way that's unanimous. It well, at least in two thousand four, when this happened, it didn't. Yeah. the The recent release of the Virginia uh, Moment of Contact film that's now in all platforms just came out like a week ago, mm. which I highly recommend. It details the event of the crash in Brazil mm. of a craft, and there's a guy who witnessed it, and literally just after a crash, over the hill comes all these military telling him to get out of there, like it was waiting to happen. Yeah. Where did these guys come from? Yeah. Like they were following it. Right. Yeah. They're right behind it. But they were ma- they made sure to tell everybody involved, every person in the military that worked on that um, recovery, mm-hmm. to this day, some of them will not talk. Really? Yeah. So that was 1996. And that was, well, <laughs> that was the Brazilian military, although word is that the U.S. military was also involved in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that James Fox even said in a recent, by answering this question of mine online, mm-hmm. that it was the U.S. military that shot this object down. Oh. That was heretofore never part of the case. And I'd been following it since 1996 because I caught wind of it in 96 mm-hmm. by following a newsletter of a fellow researcher who was putting out weekly updates on this case. Mm-hmm. And there was never the mention of a U.S. Um, component to this case at all. Hmm. Now it's all coming out. Nope. It has plenty of U.S. intelligence connections. Interesting. So we have a worldwide um, footprint (laughs) ready to, you know, every country, everywhere. We've got some sort of military contingent ready to help uh, shoot these things down or do a recovery mission. It's crazy. And you said you never got into sci-fi, huh? No. 
No, so you never, never watched, saw Star Wars. You never saw the never X saw Files? E.T. E. And you just <laughs> I can't believe you never a, saw E.T. I know, right? <laughs> That's just a movie compared I just to everything have never, else. And it's maybe just a, a, a byproduct of revealing more of my personality. I just, fantasy doesn't interest me. The fact mm. is more mind-blowing. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. But Way you're missing out on uh, the X-Files here. In this instance, there's this this overarching... Well, the, the larger story arc is that uh, the government is hiding these conspiracies... Or hiding evidence of aliens and... Yeah. Go ahead. And the only way they're all keeping quiet is because... They all put. They all had to put skin in the game. Um, I got napkins too. Uh, what do you mean? They all had to give a child to the aliens. Oh, crazy! As part of uh, whatever deal they made. So the aliens are an overwhelming force. They have control of the government. This very small mm-hmm. cabal of government officials who communicate with other government, their counterparts in other countries, and they all have these agreements. Mm-hmm. Aliens are in charge. Mm-hmm. We got to let them do what they want because we were fucked. Yeah. Essentially, they win. Um, they're going to be doing their thing, and we're going to let them. And um, in exchange for our safety in the future, we have to give up a child. And that's kind of what's going on, if you know the uh, patterns with abduction. Yeah. Interesting. So they were on the forums, these writers. Well, <laughs> I just, I guess I'm not surprised when yeah. I do see a movie and I go, wow, that's oddly real. And then I remember the bulletin board story. I told, yeah. Don told me, yeah, there's little Hollywood writers that are totally into this. Yeah. Because what you were saying before about going, like having to revert, well, naturally reverting back to things we know. And it's like, well, they just ripped it off. Back to your point about this message board, they just ripped it off from the message board. Yeah. These writers. There's one or the other, and that was it. <laughs> yeah, but it's still fantasy that creates what that physicality of that thing will actually be in the movie they're doing. Oh, yeah, who knows what it, it actually it is, looks like. Yeah. And Yeah, because The Abyss was fun. It was a, it was a cool movie. I can't believe you haven't seen that. Watch that one, I too. know, it's pathetic if you keep bringing up those movies. I don't know. Yeah, you got to watch one of these. One of these. Don't watch The X-Files because there's way too much of it. Uh, <laughs> I have seen a lot of The X-Files, though, yeah. back when it first came out. Yeah, that's a fun one, but I don't know. A lot of them are cool, like, concepts, like, proof of concept of these mm-hmm. ideas. Yeah. So far, ideas that, until I see a UFO, I don't know that one exists, you know? That's a big one. Yeah. That it really is a big one, and I, it, it took me personally a long time to kind of internalize and realize that, because I've seen some amazing pictures, mm-hmm. and I don't know how to judge them. Yeah, they could be crystal clear, and you could even see lights and portals. Mm-hmm. I don't even, and it just maybe it was this, this revelation I had at one time, and I don't know when it was. I have no idea what I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. So when everybody becomes so overtly critical when they see somebody's picture, um, oh, that's a prop. Oh, that's fake. Oh, that's CGI. Dude, give them a break. Mm-hmm. You don't even know yourself what one is. Yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm done with photos. I am done with photos. I could care less about <laughs> photos anymore. It would have to have so much substantiation. Uh, yeah, I would need a lot of clout behind a photo to... But that's where the Nimitz 
and these leaked videos mm-hmm. are super important because besides them having some weird looking blurry image we can't make out, there's telemetry information that's gathered from those that some of it is on the screen itself. If you know what you're looking at, yeah. that's giving some information about the physics of what they're looking at, which is define the laws of physics. Yeah. David Fraber, Fraver, Fraver, Fraver. Yeah. He described, I, I remember seeing it in an interview. He was describing what those dials indicated. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, the, here's uh speed. Here's wind speed. Here's this and that and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Okay, but that's that's also, what I want. <laughs> that's triangulated with what Kevin was seeing from the Princeton on his radar, and Kevin's mm. got thousands and thousands of hours at sea yeah. studying radar. Yeah, this shook him up. His life was not the same, by the way. Mm. It's really freaked him out. Um, but he said that these things were going from like fifty feet above the ocean to eighty thousand feet in less than a second. Yeah. 0.78 seconds, I think he says, or something like that. Yeah, so do the math so on... So you're seeing Fravor, you're seeing um, the radar in- information from the Princeton. Now it's not so big of a deal if the picture's blurry, because the the data is now indisputable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, at least the telemetry really checks out. By the way, a little side note that's kind of interesting. Um. I want to say maybe a couple months ago, a month ago, mm-hmm. we had an earthquake event off the Southern California coast. Mm-hmm. And then it was literally the next day that it was said that it was nothing. It that was, it didn't happen? That it didn't happen or there was no, it was not an earthquake. And I remember it was in the news. I'm like, oh my God, an earthquake happened. Mm-hmm. Kevin Day, he lives up in Oregon, but he caught wind of this and he saw the uh, geologic... Um, epicenter Mm -hmm. was exactly in between the south point of Catalina Island and the north point of San Clemente Island. And he said in a Facebook post, he had the map and he pointed to it. He goes, that's exactly where the UFOs were coming out in 2004. Really? Yes. He's, he had been studying them days before the event happened Mm -hmm. that we're up. We've all been aware of. He'd been seeing these things coming out from the Catalina area. Mm Mm-hmm. And he, you know, until the day of the actual um, workup, the actual exercise, yeah, he didn't think this was going to be an issue because he didn't know what this was exactly, but it wasn't concerned about it. Yeah, but he said there was that was the point it was coming from. Wow, strange. Yeah, I, I want to say suspicious as hell. Yeah, you could probably Google mysterious um, earthquake, Southern California, and it's probably within the past couple months. I'll and, go back on and Facebook. the episode epicenter is this almost exactly halfway between. Those two islands. Really? Yeah. It's crazy. You could check that out too. Or you can you can confirm that too. Everybody on Facebook <clears throat> confirms when there's an earthquake. <laughs> right. Right. So <laughs> I, I don't know if I didn't feel it. I don't think I felt it. I no, may have. It, I, it, a month ago. I don't remember. But no, I mean I don't think it was enough for us to feel, but it was enough for the news to report it. At least for a second. Occasionally yeah. you hear that. Oh yeah, there was a Earthquake, you know, so so miles off out at sea, but no worries. Mm. It was one of those. But then the next day, they said it was, I don't remember what they said. They said it was non-event. Like, wait a minute. You just, how does a seismic event become a non-event the next day? Yeah. And Kevin was like, that's the place where the UFOs come out of. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So I lived in Guatemala for a few months. 
and people down there talk about UFO. They don't talk about it because it's not a big deal to them. Mm-hmm. It's part of their culture. Yeah. They see them all the time. Uh-huh. And they come in and out of this lake, um, in particular, Lake Atitlan. And they say, yeah, they come in and out, whatever. They're just there. It's it's old news. They don't think to talk about it. It's not a thing. Yeah, you know what? This is This is another aspect of this subject that reveals a broader kind of um, a broader kind of perspective about humanity mm. there's a lot of um, tribal and indigenous cultures that naturally accept this mm. and a lot of Native Americans um, have names for these kinds of events mm. and I think it's just it, it gives a sense of how I don't want to beat up on America too much. It's easy to. Mm-hmm. How more homogenized we've become mm-hmm. that these kinds of events could not have been part of our culture. Mm. They've been frowned upon. They've not been embraced and integrated into our folklore. Not our folklore in a bad sense. I guess in our, in our history. In yeah, that our lexicon. They've been, yeah. yeah. It's It's seen as this really weird outer space crazy alien tinfoil hat thing. Well, you know what? Go to like South America. They see these things all the time. It's not a big deal. As a matter of fact, their governments speak openly about them. Yeah. Yeah. The, the guy, um, James Fox, that went down to Brazil to do the investigation of this case, actually talked to the mayor of the town mm. that this crash happened. And by the way, the other part of the story was two aliens, living creatures were seen in the town. And they were eventually captured. Mm. That's what makes this such a compelling case. The actual mayor from 1996 when this happened, because of the way their government works, mm-hmm. is still the mayor today. Oh. And so he talked to him. And he goes, oh, yeah, I remember that event. Yeah, we're, we all know that that happened. It's like, here this guy is representing a, you know, a political office, yeah. not worried about what he's saying. And he's still it's like, Well, yeah, because, again, it's, it's not seen as that um, stigmatized of a subject. Mm-hmm. In a lot of places, which is interesting because if it's not stigmatized to them and they know it's stigmatized for us, they don't laugh. Do they laugh at us for for? I don't know. They probably see us as like, you guys don't open your eyes enough. Yeah. Are they? <laughs> are there any stories of them actively pursuing this and trying oh, yeah. to make contact or something like that? Yeah. There's um. Um, I was on a clubhouse, which is a um, an audio-based chat service, uh, with some other investigators um, talking to a gentleman who lives in South America. God, I want to say Ecuador. Don, if he was here, could tell me. And this guy's regularly seeing UFOs from the certain point of this mountain. Mm-hmm. He's seen them all the time. And he's trying to organize a really good camera and multi-sensory data collecting effort Mm. to show this is really happening because all he sees from the bottom of the mountain is the lights that keep showing and people who've up there who've been up there have seen the craft yeah he's like this is not a this is not a a a random once every 10 years thing this is happening regularly and the town's aware of it yeah they take it for granted but these UFOs are flying in and out of this mountain and um what's anybody going to do about it Right. So he's like, okay, well, I'm going to finally get a good camera crew and we're going to go show the world that this is happening. Yeah. 
I'd love to touch base if Don even talk to the guy or not. See if he's made any progress on that. I'd love to see that. Yeah. Or hear it or no, whatever. I'd love to experience I've because I've never seen anything. Yeah. I've I, never had any odd experience. Anything mm. the only thing was those lights that I told you about. Oh right, yes. And uh that were quickly debunked when I drove up the street. Uh um, still, you know, kudos to whoever put those lights on the mountain. Very That's a cool. big effort. Yeah. And those are bright lights. And who knows what they even were. Do you I want to maybe... summarize what you're talking about? Yeah. So it was, uh, I was down at a bowling alley in Rancho with my girlfriend. It was, it's on a Haven and Foothill. As we're leaving, I see four lights, or, uh, red, yellow, green, and white, uh, in a straight line, as straight as could be. And it's, this is on the mountain, on the San Gabriel Mountains. Uh, kind of hazy. I can't see the outline of the of the mountains, but I see these four lights, and I text you immediately. Look up, <laughs> look north, look at these lights. I remember that. And uh, you came right back. And you're like, oh no, I just I've already heard of these, and these aren't real. <laughs> and I was like, oh, let me see, let me see. I drive up Hermosa to the very top of Hermosa, which is the best view of where that is, and I can see the lights uh, a little clearer. They could be mounted to a truck. They could be little towers. They're just lights. They're like, they look like bulbs of some kind. And I'm like, oh, they're just lights. Shit. (laughs) That's the closest I've seen to anything. Still, I was told by the people I was following who were talking about this, that this has happened before. Mm -hmm. Like previous years. And I've never seen those before. And I grew up in Rancho. Yeah, it's just weird because... You'd think somebody would come forward and say why they did it. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of cool that it's this weird mystery. Yeah. Didn't uh, the the two guys, the the two hoaxers that were doing crop circles, didn't they come out on their own? Um, or were they exposed? They were, they were, they were exposed for some, doing some fake ones. Mm-hmm. But the phenomenon of crop circles is still alive and well today. Yeah, because they didn't account for all of them. No. They only did a, a few, I No, think. It didn't, they could not have accounted for all of them because they were happening everywhere, yeah. <laughs> including other countries. Yeah. So It's another movie it, you got to watch. It was a way of pacifying the curious few in mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what does First Contact look like to you? I, I think it's already happened. Or like a public you? First Contact. How do you um, think they'll expose it? Or, uh, Who's they? Or, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> the, the government. I don't whoever's, think whoever's whoever's the point of contact with any species. If they want to reveal it to the the general public, how, what do you think that would look like? I think it's going to be a slow drip. Just a slow it will drip. never be a step up to the podium and tell the world. Mm. No, no way. You Can't. don't think they'll land on the White House lawn? It would be so dramatic. They would have had a chance to do that many times in the past. Mm-hmm. I think it's healthy to think about the phenomenon being driven by them, not mm. us. Mm. The secrecy is being managed only in part, I think, by us. Mm. Yeah, because it they doesn't could make sense otherwise. Want. And by the way, it doesn't make sense otherwise to have this discussion about how hostile they may be. If they were hostile, they would have bumped a space rock in our direction and, and we'd be the next dinosaur age mm-hmm. if they wanted to do away with us. 
I want to emphasize again this interview with Dr. Gary Nolan, who mm-hmm. seems to be deeply in the know. Mm-hmm. He's, he's exercising a philosophy that we all should be about how to better see this phenomenon. We keep seeing it through what we're conditioned to think about. And when it comes to a better way to think about how this phenomenon might be seen, mm-hmm. he, there's this, there's this, um, there's a kind of um, a diagrammatic three-dimensional model he thinks about. Let's say you've got a piece of paper and the piece of paper represents one plane of reality. Mm-hmm. And let's say the ant that's sitting on the piece of paper is us. Mm-hmm. And all we know is the piece of paper and everything in its horizontal path that you see every day. Mm-hmm. And let's say you put a cup down on that piece of paper and the ant suddenly sees this giant object, but he's only seen sideways. So mm-hmm. he only sees this, this, this cylindrical thing land on his paper. Mm-hmm. Why is it there? What's it doing? He's, let's say the, let's just say the ant has intelligence. Mm-hmm. What's it doing? Where's it coming from? And then it suddenly gets picked up and flies away and defies the complete laws of physics the ant is aware of. Mm-hmm. Well, the fact that the cup was put there with water in it, let's say, was no more a revelatory instance to the ant than the guy who was holding the cup who just happened to put it there. The ant has no clue right. about the broader story of what that represents. Mm-hmm. That moment to the ant could be the most surreal, um, you know, episode in his life. But the person who's driving the cup to be put down on the piece of paper is just putting it there while he makes a phone call or something. Didn't even think about it. Yeah. So Gary's, his, his point was the, the episodes we get to witness these phenomenon may just be a byproduct of some bigger thing that they're doing. We keep assigning this idea that there's others out there that are visiting us. Mm-hmm. They're curious. We may be just getting in the prop wash of their jet fighter, and we're just getting blown away by how amazing this is when the intention is not to blow you away. They're just doing their thing, and they've probably, they might have been doing it here for millions of years. Yeah. I heard a theory that they could be building something around us for all we know, and we wouldn't even recognize it. Right. They could be building some kind of highway system or communication network, and we wouldn't even know what, what to look for, what to listen for. Or they're just doing what they have been doing forever. And, you know, the other thing Gary talks about is this idea that when, if do you, do you go out of your way to make diplomatic relations with the ants in your garden? Mm. Why would you? They're just ants. It could be we're the ants. There's bigger issues going on the 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 idiot uh, you know mm. earthlings think this is a big episode i would have to believe though <laughs> that <laughs> that the that some among their species would be archaeolo- archaeologists anthropologists that's a human construct thinking there maybe but what if they're exploring some... space i mean who said they're exploring if they're expanding they're exploring they're learning right who said they're learning or expanding or exploring? Well, if they were, would that suggest that they're always that they've always been around us? Possibly. In at, at these distances, 
in these points? Do they live within our solar system? Do they do they only travel through it? Why do they travel? Are they trading? Are they talking to other species? But, yeah, see, I think of those as like human constructs mm. for this argument of what they might be. I'm surprised that hasn't happened more often. Men in Black coming. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah that's why... I, I don't know. I probably, uh, I, I don't exercise too much of that because I know that I'm applying, uh, and it's probably unfair to say, well, yeah, but Brian, you're, you're human. So apply some sort of human mm. um, conclusion to this. Um, but, and I don't want to get unnecessarily open-minded to where I can't conclude anything. Right. That's right. ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, you've been doing this for 30 years, Brian. <laughs> Start to frame some sort of opinion. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. I guess when, when, Nolan said that it opened up a possibility that I was really taken aback by. Mm. That I, I like that idea. I get it, but we don't open diplomatic relations with an anthill because we know that they can't communicate with us. No, no, I don't, I don't believe that. You no. don't go out in your garden and go, God, I wish I could communicate with you so badly. Well, people no, you have, don't give them the time of day. People have been studying ants for years. No, but I guess the, his point was it's incidental that mm. you're there and I'm here. And, um, you know, you. I, I guess his point was the, the, the fantastic um, advanced nature of this phenomenon mm-hmm. can be seen as absurd as it sounds as us and ants. Right, right, right. Right. Yeah, yeah, and I and I, I do see the analogy. At the same time, I I have to believe that one of the aliens would try. Well, they and are contacting people and communicating with people, and yeah, because they're picking out individual ants. Yes, and teaching them how to fly one of their craft and other things. Yeah, uh, evident by the Ruwa Zimbabwe. Um, aerial school. What was Holy that? Holy hell. Yeah. What See, was that this one is why, about? God, I hope you have enough tape. <laughs> <laughs> I have about 73 more hours okay. of, uh, <laughs> uh, another, another film that everybody should see. And I help subsidize the cost of it by donating to it many times. Hmm. Um, the aerial phenomenon hmm. in, um, 1994 over 80 school children witnessed a mass landing in their schoolyard. Aliens get out, interact with the children, Mm -hmm. get back in their craft and fly away. Kids are freaked out. Um, Originally, it was thought that only the kids saw it, and because at the school there was a teacher's conference going on and all the adults at the school were there, that none of the adults saw it. But now I think there's two that have seen it, Mm -hmm. that were part of that saw it as well. Um. It's an event that happened with ages eight to twelve year old kids all seeing this thing together, and they all draw the same picture what they saw. Yeah, yeah, they all agreed. Yeah, that's what it was. And there's and there's enough consistency and slight imperfection in everything they're drawing because they're kids mm-hmm. that the essence of the story seems to be real. Mm-hmm. Within two weeks, Harvard psychologist flies out there and interviews the kids, and that's part of in the documentary his the footage of the film crew with him talking to the kids. Mm-hmm. And what the kids say to him that they saw and experienced. Um, and the, the, there's a common thread with this case that I was going to tell you about. 
there's a common thread with um, certain cases where people have had a close interaction with an entity mm. where there's a flood, a transfer of, um, of a, a story that gets put into the mind of the victim mm. that depicts a future where things are going to be dying. Um, the planet is going to be destroyed. Um, you know, people are going to be f- dying. The forests are going to fall down, mm-hmm. all this stuff. Now, this happened to these children and the many of them who had close interaction with the alien, like within like five feet, mm-hmm. got flooded with this story. Um, now, these are kids. Mm-hmm. And the, it's important to understand that they're not in um, inhibited or influenced by pop culture mm-hmm. in this particular area of Zimbabwe, you know, a lot of kids don't have TV, mm-hmm. so they don't get exposed to a lot of things. Yeah. It's 1994. They don't have internet there. It's th- this is the most authentic kind mm-hmm. of case. And they're and kids, kids. And they're right? kids. Yeah. They're afraid. Yeah. When you see this movie and you see the original footage of them being interviewed, mm-hmm. these kids are petrified about what they saw, and they're all drawing the same thing. And to this day, some of them I interact with because mm. I know them. They still stick by their story. Really? Absolutely. And it cha- in some cases, it really changed them. Yeah. Yeah. How could it not? Uh, right? Uh. You got exposed to something that very few people on this earth have ever seen. Yeah. And the only way it doesn't change you, I think, is if you continue to ex- have those experiences throughout your life. If that's the only one... And you grow up in a world where this does not happen often to people, mm-hmm. uh, relatively. You know, of course, it's going to freak you out to the day you die, right? Freak you out might be a strong word. Mm. Um, make you maybe have an appreciation for the larger world we live in. Mm. And, you know, knowledge now of like why things are being covered up because it's a big story. Mm. Um I mean, this girl that I follow every day and I see her work on Instagram, Emily Trim, who's one of the, one of the students who is in the film now grown up. Mm-hmm. I'm, every single day, dozens and dozens of paintings she's doing and uploading. She's got thousands of paintings mm-hmm. now and some of them look like this archaic alien writing. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of paintings, some of them with figures that look like they've got big heads. But she's otherwise, I think, very stable-minded. It's just this is something important to her. Mm-hmm. Um, she wants to paint. Yeah, She wants to get things out. Might be a byproduct of this episode that happened to her. I'm not sure. I was just going to ask. Yeah, I but, wonder what that influence is, if it's an influence mm-hmm. at all. Or if it's just her. And then another, um, <clears throat> Liesl is this um, mother of kids, and she's living her normal life as much as possible. And um, she's been interviewed about this film on stage and it's kind of like shy about it. Doesn't say it didn't happen, but it doesn't sound like it really affected her. Mm-hmm. So interesting, I, or at least it's not manifest in the things I've seen with her. But I guess if you have no frame of reference in the beginning, it's a scary experience. It's new. It's completely foreign. But as a kid, you're so malleable. For some of them, they probably just got over it. Got over the sensation of it, right? The Where they're just like, oh, well, 
just naturally, not even thinking about how, I don't know, normal the moment was, Mm -hmm. you know? In one case, one of the kids was um, the children of two missionaries Mm -hmm. who were adamant that what he saw was demonic. Mm. And it really created a lot of problems, him growing up with them, because... um, they're holding on to their belief system that suggests that this has to be filtered through this kind of um, concept mm-hmm. that this has to be a demonic thing. Mm-hmm. And probably everything that's kids aware of that's supposed to be demonic is really dark and scary. Well, they didn't hurt us. You know, it's fascinating to see. Mm-hmm. Some of us ran screaming, but, you know, it kind of freaked him out. And so... Um, Oh, he had a whole different connotation with it. Yeah, as a matter of fact, when the um, when Randall, the director, tried to reach out to him, now at an adult age, um, he was still reluctant. To, he didn't talk to him because I think his parents were still influencing his life about talking to anybody about this. Mm-hmm. So, kind of an interesting set of stories. It's really worth seeing. Yeah, I uh, I, I definitely need to see that one because hey, that story have, I never we had. have to come over sometime because I've got oh, for sure. I got a li- <laughs> I got a lot of stuff I can show you. <laughs> I yeah. got a lot of stuff. Oh, I'm so down for but, that. But um, no, I mean, as of this, I kind of say, like these last ten years, there's been some incredible investigative pieces that have been done on the subject that were mm-hmm. exceptionally done. I think part of it is also this idea that you can self um, um, produce. Mm-hmm. You don't need a major studio backing. There's so many great independent small groups of. Um, production companies out there that are producing this stuff Mm -hmm. to help back the funding on it. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I definitely appreciate that, that anybody with that know how Mm -hmm. who's also into this is applying their knowledge to producing these things, you know, talking to these people, anything, just contributing anything to this subject at all. Yeah. Um, which reminds me, I got a record to show you because this one band. Oh, we're going to go full circle now and come back yeah. to music. <laughs> I had a plan. <laughs> this is called taking a. This is a. <laughs> this is a, a U-turn. This is what this podcast just did. Took a wild U-turn. So this band out of Ohio was all in. <laughs> with uh, with the UFO phenomenon, they're called the Darvacets, mm. and uh, I guess named after a drug. But uh, have a look at that documents. Oh, whatnot. look at this! All oh these. yeah, the um. Oh yeah, look at the sport models right there. Mm. We got some crop circles going on there. MJ12 documents. Is that the MJ12 documents on there? Which are false. Those have been debunked. <laughs> Was that all misinformation? Uh, dis- or disinformation. Right? Mm, that's debatable. There's a lot of theories about why that happened. Mm. Um, it seems sloppy. Everything I well, heard about it. The way that it was put out, there's a tremendous amount of work that probably went into this. Mm-hmm. And the way that it came out could have fallen flat. Mm. So the fact that it got some legs and the right, um, Bill Moore and Jamie Chandray were the two that, that 
put this out because mm-hmm. they got this film this uh film canister in their uh, in the mail and they had to develop and they saw these documents mm-hmm. but that could have there, there could have been so many reasons that that never came to fruition mm. um if they decided there was nothing to it but there would have been a lot of work that was apparently put into these because it's been studied by some impressive um investigators mm-hmm. uh, so you wonder with things like that god that's just like a shot in the dark let's let's fake some documents give them to these guys and see what happens yeah and it could have just been eh, you know the guy at the film shop lost the film i don't know <laughs> something could have happened it also could just be a dumb mistake mm-hmm. of some kind right oh open it up to uh check out the record itself oh, look at that that's crazy the record oh, itself oh, glows oh, in the dark yay. how yeah. cool is that I love that. See, that was another cool thing with vinyl. Right? A lot of people do that now, too. Oh, look at that. That is so awesome. Yeah. Isn't that neat? Yeah. <laughs> These guys were all in. They're out of Ohio. They're long gone, but... Uh, just like Devo. <laughs> just like Devo's still going. I've still been trying to catch them. Oh, like, my gosh. I have a funny story about Devo. I can oh, tell you. Oh, I do tell. Um, so I was working at the design office in uh, Studio City, mm-hmm. and really nice spot and when we took it over to kind of retrofit a little bit more to be more design office Mm -hmm. our conference room we wanted to get some very nice stylish like italian lighting um in the ceiling anyway this guy comes to install it and um one of my co-workers uh comes into my office and says you're never going to believe who's installing this light because i was i was talking to him about what he does he goes Mm -hmm. i used to be in a band it's one of the Bobs. You know, Devo had Bob 1 and Bob 2. Yeah. It's one of the Bobs. And I'm like, I went into this conference room, and I looked at him, and I went back and went online and looked at, and sure enough, it's him. Bob Casile or... One uh, of, yeah, one of yeah. them. There was one that I think is thinner than Bob Casile, the other guy. But um, he was installing than, oh, lights. Yeah. He was installing custom lights. I thought they were all wow. still going. I don't know if that guy's still alive, but... Um. I don't know, but at least that day it was a light installer. <laughs> they had been, <laughs> yeah, because they're I mean, they're on and off, I guess, but they've they've been touring for a long time. Mm-hmm. I saw them in '04, and they're touring. They they toured last year. Wow, there's a lot of hidden meaning in these uh, in the in artwork, these, uh, liner notes, <laughs> and all this stuff. Yeah, it's pretty crazy for sure. Yeah, I think there's local references and whatnot over there and are there tracks um oh yeah atlantis dreamland catamulation eyes yeah. like ants. <laughs> jeez they totally uh, got into it eyes like ants grandma's an alien something something like that yeah great it's all stories that it's it's all accounts they're mm-hmm. all just telling the stories as songs and it's such a beautiful thing yeah but, okay so there's a lot of um interested um young people now mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not young anymore so there's a lot of young people now mm-hmm. that are interested in the subject, and um, they need they need to really do research. They mm-hmm. can't. There a lot of people um, have a fascination with the subject, but they're just reading stuff online, and it doesn't really take much to go and investigate things yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm seeing a lot of people drawing conclusions when I find out all you did was read somebody's blog and you've, that's your, what your go talk to people. Yeah. Um, it's not that as hard as it looks. Mm. Yeah. 
yeah, like you said, you just reached out on Facebook and people are... Well, even before that, I would reach out and call people. I would go and meet with people. I would um, reach out and ask for a meeting with people. In one case, I met with an LAPD um, officer in the Van Nuys Division who's having abductions, and I helped him get um, regressive hypnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, Go to meetings. Go to where people are conglomerating on this subject, going to talks, conventions connect with people Mm. Um, but this is something I'm witness to and a lot of seasoned investigators seeing this now too there's a lot of just sitting back and letting the passive information feed you when you're not actually and you're drawing like these big conclusions Mm. like you really should investigate Mm. yeah what do you think the ratio is of people who you would take seriously and people who you think might just be delusional dilettantes in the subject? I don't really know anybody's delusional. Mm. I know people that I feel like can't substantiate adequately some of the claims that they make. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what I'd like to think I did over all these years so far is connect with the right kind of people. Mm-hmm. Like I said, connecting with Ross right now is huge mm. because he's a deeply seasoned award-winning investigative journalist with a deep Rolodex, by the way, in Washington, DC. So he has means of connecting with the people as an investigative journalist, not a UFO guy Mm -hmm. to get answers. So he's worth following. Ross, Uh, Ross Colthart, Ross Colthart. Yes. C O U L T H A R T. Um, he and I've done many zoom calls together. Mm Hmm. And he's been more than gracious with his time with me. Mm. And uh, so I've now got a relationship where I feel like I can text him real quick mm. what he thinks about this and that, and he'll provide me information. And without going into any detail really about this other giant case I've been working on for 13 years, mm. which I've not really told you about, um, he was able to help substantiate that, and that was huge for me. Oh. Because nobody else is talking about this. That's cool. That's another podcast. That's a boost right That's there. That's huge. Yeah. Oh, we'll come back. Yeah. <laughs> but well, I know um, we're at two and a half hours. Fuck, I got it. That's cool. <laughs> but I don't know if anybody's listening this long. People do. That's why I generally go this long. Yeah. Hopefully there's like work in and they have this on in the background. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I usually go a couple hours. Um, cool. In the beginning, it was just that was just for fun. Mm-hmm. Turns out that's the way to go. And I started this in this for that's what I when I was telling you about Gary Newman. I talked to him for fifteen minutes before his publicist cut us off. Oh wow! Okay. And I was like, I need to talk to this guy for a long time. We were just getting cooking, and never got to talk to him again. But um, those are the best interviews because it, it's not until about forty-five minutes that people start getting comfortable. Both parties, myself included, you know, start getting comfortable in the conversation and things start flowing more smoothly. Mm -hmm. And uh, 15 minutes to half hour is not enough. So these long ones are great. Well, people like listening to them, too. I used to have in my apartment in Pasadena when I lived in Pasadena, I used to have groups of people coming over, sit on my couch and I'd show them videos Mm -hmm. because I had friends. That would know I'm into the subject. I'm investigating it. And they're going, oh my gosh, I got to bring some friends over. You got to tell them what you know. Mm. And this is a regular thing. This is back in like, yeah, the early 90s. 
when I was living in this uh, apartment. Yeah. That regularly I'd have people coming over, and I was like very uncomfortable talking about it because, yeah. I, you know, nobody else was telling them what's going on. Yeah. And it's hard to get this information, and I was pretty satisfied with what things I was showing, showcasing, and talking about because mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't mainstream. Um, so it was a good time. People too. are interested. People are people are interested. interested. By the way, not enough. Segueing into the music world, I find a lot of people in music have an inclination to have a really great open mind about things like this. Ideally, yeah, definitely, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so Case in point, the Darvisets. <laughs> well, that and just yeah, general appreciation for um, things that inspire and things that are like uh, non-quantifiable, like mm-hmm. a great song you can't quantify. <laughs> yeah, like the right? like super just I don't know the most creative people they they get it from somewhere or they they talk about getting it from somewhere, you know, and well they seem to think that there's something else at play. I like that music is um, is a nice uh, intermediate communication method between the listener and the artist. Mm-hmm. The artist, like a painter, has something in mind that he's going to put down, and mm-hmm. hopefully it will evoke everything he's hoping it will. But at its best, it will be appreciated by somebody. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just therapy. So until you put it on a wall and let other people see it and get energy off of it, then it's just for you and you keep it silent and quiet. Like, that's, that's a not, really good point. Yeah. I heard somebody say that a long time ago and I thought it makes sense. Then it's it's not therapy. art until it's shared. Otherwise it's just therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, music is that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything I love about a piece of music, I feel a natural inclination that I'm tapped into that person who made it. Mm-hmm. And as another human being, that's a great thing to do. Mm-hmm. That's another. That's a great feeling to get that you delivered something that really connected with me. Yeah, and the that's what the arts are, I guess, in general. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's Mu- about music, though. Music is uh, for me. It's it's the number one art form. Mm-hmm. It's it's always been. I love all art, but music is the one. And uh, it's to this day, I could play some songs on guitar. I know a million musicians. It's still magic to me. Mm-hmm. It's still, I still see a band on, I saw this artist yesterday. Um, it's very poppy, very, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of stuff you would hear, a lot of EDM kind of stuff mm-hmm. you would hear, mm-hmm. pretty mm-hmm. common stuff. Watching her perform, it was just like magic. Like, it's, it's so hard to describe. And the way that she could draw a crowd and have them just singing with her, yelling with her, mm. just, and then looking at comments afterwards on Instagram, I spilled my heart out tonight. <laughs> I I said oh. I wasn't going to scream, and I did. And oh, that's awesome. Things like that, yeah. and it's like it's magic. It's mm-hmm. it's just pure magic. It's beautiful. It is. Yeah. So just to be connected to it, your career is that's what I that's initially what started this conversation so <laughs> your career uh working with musicians and working oh, in yeah. artwork and how cool just how yeah I've never cool. formally <laughs> talked about it you're the first person to really get me to talk about um my um 
my phase in the music world. Yeah. Oh, was, oh, we'll come back and talk more if you're down, because uh, I know you've got it's stories It's too easy, because I'm, I'm like next city over. Yeah. <laughs> so. Cool. Well, you want to wrap it up? Uh, how do you do that here? Uh, <laughs> well, that's pretty much it. Now, is there anything, uh, you didn't want to plug anything you said, right? Did you want to, do you have any, anything you're, you're working on that you wanted to um, get eyes on? No, I'm working on projects right now that I had to sign NDAs because oh, of large branding projects. <laughs> so it's kind of like a military thing, you know, uh, I'm, I'd have to kill you if I told you. <laughs> well, in that case, <laughs> we'll come back and talk music and uh, please tell me stories, more stories about Stevie Nicks. And uh... <laughs> Oh, yeah, I didn't get into everything. There's there's still some other stories I could have told about the music stuff. Yeah. But um, but the big, big items I think we covered and that's cool. Yeah. And we got to talk aliens. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for uh, <laughs> connecting with me and allowing me to do this. Of course. Thanks for doing this. Sure. And uh, see you soon. I know we will. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers.